בשם השם נעשה ונצליח, ברוכים הבאים to our uh, major event, first event of the year, ברוך השם. First and foremost, thank you very much everybody for coming. We are ברוך השם people from New York, from Colorado, from uh, Washington, uh, the far part, uh, the one that's uh, really, really far, not the Washington DC. You guys went the extra stretch, ברוך השם. Uh, Texas, Florida, you guys are my heroes. Uh, tonight's you, Bezot Hashem, will be for a refuah shlema for Rabbanit Levana Bat Sara, Rabbi Ephraim Ben Shulamit, Avi Mori David Ben Asriya, Doris Bat Jora, Sara Bat Anat, Orit Bat Ilana, and also for Atzlacha Raba for Marsha Bat Julie, Ayla Bat Marsha, Samuel Ben Marsha, Sefas Ben Marsha, Alexander Ben Marsha, Louis Ben Marsha, Shaul ben Farzane, Amir ben Shahin. And, um, one second. And also for the anonymous boys of D-Block. Asrechem v'asrechel kechem, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Yivarech Otchem Bekom Mikol Kol, Chayim Arukim, Shlemim, Eleim, Torah, Mitzvot, Gmiut Chasadim, and really for, for you. For all of you that have uh, actually uh, come out, stopped your life, and Baruch Hashem have uh, come over here, whether you're local or you're far away, Shrechem, really appreciate you guys coming out. So, uh, first off, if you guys have noticed, it's very sunny here. No, but I don't, uh, just to answer the elephant in the room, I figured we'll start off this year about it. Um, why am I even wearing glasses? Uh, it's not a new stylish look, I care less for glasses, but uh, rather because I, Kadosh Baruch Hu Baruch Hashem, Yishtabach Shimolad, always likes to give me nice tikkunim just to see what I'm going to do. And uh, that's in essence the life in, in general. Hashem always wants to test you to see what you're going to do. Are you doing it for this? Are you doing it for that? So a few days ago he decided to give me a uh, nice uh, uh, infection in my eye. So I figured that instead of you guys uh, wondering what's wrong with me, whether... Uh, uh, I'm uh, contagious or not contagious, whether I'm okay or not okay, I figured I'd wear glasses and uh, spare you the, uh, the question. It's not contagious, there's nothing wrong with it, but it's uh, better to uh, address it uh, uh, right up front. Uh, and the reason why is because I think that um, one of the main things that we're seeing today, especially after the very public battle that uh, we had against the uh, idolatry, against people that promote idolatry, is that uh, we really saw what HaKadosh Baruch Hu is doing at this point as far as the end of days and how he's separating the, uh, the people that are, that are dedicated to Hashem and the people that are not. Uh, there are a lot of people that uh, are part of uh, you know, the, the world, of course. There's uh, quite a few people that are part of uh, Judaism as well. Some people consider themselves Jewish even though they worship an idol. Some people worship some guy that died 2,000 years ago. Some people worship some guy that died 30 years ago. Some people worship a guy that's still alive. But uh, the only people that are worshiping Hashem are the ones that are willing to do it uh, through thick and thin, uh, whether it's convenient or not convenient. And uh, it's important for us to know that now that we're, we're finding ourselves in these times where there's a lot of confusion out there, there's a, uh, a lot of different mixed messages, and uh, you'll sometimes see a, uh, otherwise well-known uh, rabbis or leaders or, or different types of people 
that uh, perhaps uh, are not doing what uh, you thought was right. And sometimes it's because we were wrong and they were right. And sometimes it's because they were wrong and we were right. And uh, the only way that a person is going to really find out what's the true, what's true and what's not is really if they stick to the halakha to see what's, uh, what does the Torah say. And the Torah doesn't change. People change, but the Torah doesn't change. Uh, the mistakes of people have been repeated throughout all of the ages, but uh, you know, in general, the, uh, the people sometimes will start off in one path and uh, will uh, eventually change their direct direction. Sometimes it's a better path, sometimes it's a worse path. And uh, now with uh, the whole thing that happened with uh, this uh, missionary being a, uh, invited into a um, synagogue, uh, uh, that in itself is not really the biggest problem. That is, a, uh, from my perspective, is really the beginning of the end. Because uh, even though the, um, there's been other times that... Uh, Different pastors and missionaries have been invited uh, or, uh, you know, uh, I guess been invited to Jewish programs, Jewish synagogues. Uh, I don't think anyone has really cried out foul until recently. And um, although we had a uh, good result five years ago, uh, the result uh, that happened in the last uh, couple of weeks uh, is, is less than good, let's just say that, because... Uh, the, the event continued. The missionary was, uh, uh, you know, was dancing on, uh, you know, right next to the Arona Kodesh with the rabbis over there. And the rabbinical world, uh, more or less, uh, stayed quiet. And not only stayed quiet, but many of them are celebrating like a, uh, a victory dance right now, writing articles about it and... Uh, you know, inviting more people, and, and more or less you're seeing the world continue either getting worse or just as if it didn't happen. But from, uh, from my perspective, this is a, uh, a bigger tragedy than the event itself because it's telling us to a certain extent what to expect, what to expect in these coming months, what to expect in these coming years until HaKadosh Baruch decides to send the Mashiach. And one of the things that I can assure you that all of us have to expect is for HaKadosh Baruch Hu to test us. But not just once, not just twice, not just three times, and not just ten times. Everyone is going to be tested in their own level endless amount of times to see whether you're serving Hashem or you're serving yourself. And that was one of the questions that I myself had to answer. Uh, you know, I'd answer it usually on a regular basis, but in the last couple of days, that was definitely one of the questions I had to answer because I'm not exactly uh, uh, a fan of, uh, of being sick, and I definitely don't like to, you know, to, to feel it or look it and uh, to have a lecture when everybody's looking at your face, and then you have this thing on your face, and you're like, ah, should I do it, should I not? But then you start thinking, wait, what am I doing the lecture for? What am I giving this you for? Am I giving it because of my good looks? Am I giving it because of money? Am I giving it for likes? Am I giving it for popularity? What's the purpose of the whole thing? What's the nafkamina? As we say in the language of the Gemara. What's the nafkamina? What's the point of all of it? And the point of all of it is to give ourselves chizuk. To get ourselves closer to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, To get ourselves in, a, uh, in the right path if we're not already on it. And if we are on it, just to give us assurance that we're on it. Because to now more than ever... Chizuk is necessary on a regular basis because there are so many things that are out there 
that are confusing. There are so many things that are out there that are the opposite of what we would think is right and what we would think is wrong, that uh, if you're not constantly connected, literally hardwired to the truth, it's very easy to fall off. It's very easy to fall off. And that's actually some of the things that I saw in the last couple of weeks is that I saw some decent people that I know for a while that simply fell off. Well, they just don't want to fight anymore. They don't want to argue anymore. They just want to live their life in comfort and uh, simply uh, act like uh, there's, you know, they're uh, fans sitting on the sidelines watching the show take place. And that's not something that any of us can afford to do. And the reason why is because kol Israel arvim All of Am Israel are connected. Whether we like it or we don't like it, we're all connected. And anyone that thinks that the event in Texas that took place a few days ago, where this deformed rabbi and a, a bunch of his uh, victims were, uh, were held hostage by a terrorist, if anyone thinks that's just a happenstance, you're making a very big mistake. There is no such thing as a happenstance. There's no such thing as a happenstance. Only in the world of vicious people without a God is there a happenstance. In the world of God, of the God of Israel, there is no happenstance. Everything happens for a reason. And it's important for us to know that everything that's happening right now, all of the anti-Semitism, all of the uh, major issues, the, the corona and the uh, whatever the other viruses are called, and the uh, financial issues, and all the other stuff that's happening in the world, all of that is connected to our actions. Not just as individuals, but also as a people. And if we're going to start allowing the world of idolatry, the world of Esav, the world of Edom, the world of Amalek, to start entering our houses, to start entering our synagogues, to start entering our lives without crying foul, without doing anything about it, and think that Hashem is not going to do anything about it, we're making a mistake. And I think that's one of the things that um, a person has to know already, first and foremost, that's one sacrifice that you already have to expect. That you're going to have to deal with uh, this fight, if you will, one way or another. Sometimes that fight is going to be like the very loud and annoying fight that we had in the last few weeks, where you're pretty much crying out to the Jewish world, especially the rabbinical world, letting them know, reminding them of a very, very simple halacha in the Shulchan Aruch and the Rambam, and pretty much by all poskim, including their own poskim, that what they're doing is forbidden. And expecting to fail already from the start, but nonetheless doing it because it's the right thing to do. So sometimes the fight against idolatry is going to be that way. Other times the fight is going to be simply uh, deciding which school to send your kids. Are you willing to send your kids to a good yeshiva, meaning that you're not going to have you're not going to have any savings account left anymore because it's so expensive. You're not going to have uh, much free time. You're not going to have a lot of things, but you're going to at least have good education, or you're going to send your kid to public school and hope for the best. Any parent that sends their kids to public school is like a parent that's sending their kids to an uh, idol that's uh, as a sacrifice. That's what the Yelkut uh, Ma'am uh, Loez says, that a parents that send their kids to public school is like parents that are giving a sacrifice to an idol. Why? Because simply giving it a child public school education where uh, today, even more than ever, is as obvious as day that it's wrong to be in any vicinity close to such a place, where they're teaching kids that it's okay for them to choose their own gender, 
because there's this new woke movement, Imach Shemam Vezicham, that are actually publishing books, have endless uh, money, endless uh, uh, support, endless strength, and they're writing and publishing books literally by the dozens and without any supervision, without anybody getting in the way, and in fact even being promoted to be put into the public school libraries. And the kids are picking up these books and they're saying, oh, look, this boy says he's a girl, so maybe I'm a girl also. And the teacher is reading them the book and says, yeah, maybe you are a girl. And they're putting all this junk into the kids' minds. And you have even Disney promoting homosexuality and all types of toiva, all types of disgusting things. So a person that sends their kids to a public school, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, is, is simply sending their kid as a sacrifice. Why? Because you cannot say that what you're doing is a good thing anymore. Because the public school education today is simply a tragedy. On the other hand, not all yeshiva education is perfect. Why? We have obviously many horror stories that are coming from different places, whether it's bad teachers or sick teachers, spiritually sick teachers and all that stuff. So every parent has to obviously be conscious of it. But I think one of the biggest issues that are in the, uh, in the uh, yeshiva world that is really uh, unaddressed is the fact that there are many Christians and idol worshippers teaching inside those schools, English and mathematics and all types of so-called neutral subjects. And anyone that read the Lausanne Report, which is the missionary report published about 17 years ago, uh, this is part of the strategy of the missionary world, of the evangelical world, is to enter the Jewish world in whatever way they can, whether it's entering your local JCC or Jewish Federation by being a volunteer to say hello to people, or it's to be a, a teacher that's uh, getting a salary that's half of what they actually need for their life, but they're getting the rest of it from the church. Whatever it is, there is a lot of missionaries literally roaming within our community and we're not realizing it, we're not, you know, uh, conscious of it. And many times, even after people know about it, they simply don't, they're dumbfounded. They don't know what to do about it. So I think that one of the things that each and every one of us has to already take into account, that this, the, uh, the sacrifice uh, of, of uh, battling idolatry is a necessary battle. Each one of us is going to have to deal with at some point. Meaning, if you have a kid that's going to a yeshiva and you find out that one of his teachers or two or three or seven of his teachers are of a different faith, you have to speak out. You have to say something to the uh, school. You have to exclude your kid from that class, which again, will make life more difficult. But it's better you make your life more difficult than wake up one day and your kid comes to you like some of my other students that tell me that their kid came home asking them about Jesus. Okay, kid comes home, eight, nine-year-old kid comes home from a uh, yeshiva asking the parents about Jesus. So there is really no bigger tragedy than that because kids are more inf easily influenced and harder to fix than adults at times because once something enters a kid's mind, it's very hard to, to remove it. And today the missionaries are working very hard to target children. There is a whole lawsuit in, in Eretz Yisrael right now against the missionaries when uh, Baruch Hashem about a year and a half ago, two years ago, we exposed that uh, they uh, uh, said in a lecture in a, uh, in, a, in a church here in America, they were doing a tour to raise money for their idolatry. And they said that one of the things that they're proud of is that they're able to reach the Israeli children without having to deal with their parents anymore. How? By going through their phones. By going through their phones. And this is one of the things we highlighted about a year and a half ago.
and uh, Hashem, uh, Yad, La, uh, Yad Laachim and a couple of other organizations uh, 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 picked that up and uh, they filed a lawsuit against uh, this organization because it's illegal to missionize the children. Uh, and Baruch Hashem, there's a very big lawsuit in Eretz Yisrael right now as, a, uh, as, as one of the things that could potentially uh, at least slow them down. Will it take them down? Absolutely not. The missionary world, the Christian world has endless supply of money and connections and Amalek that it's not going to be that easy to beat them. It's just simply we can do different things to slow them down. But one thing I can tell you is that every person has to also take into account that there's an additional sacrifice they have to make. What's the sacrifice? You have to hear your kids complaining. Complaining about the fact that you don't give them freedom. You don't give them freedom to look at their phones whenever they want. You don't give them freedom to have every single app. You don't give them freedom to have phones, period. Quite frankly, I don't even know why kids have phones. What do they need a phone for? I grew up without a phone. I survived pretty well. My brothers grew up without a phone. We pretty much survived. We didn't need to call my mom 500 times. I'm not really understanding the, this whole notion, this whole movement that we have in the world today. And I'm not talking about the secular world. The secular world has a different problem. They have to identify who's God first. I'm talking about the Froom people. I'm talking about the religious people. I'm talking about us, where you have different Froom people giving their children 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13 years old phones. Why? What does a 12-year-old need a phone for? What is he going to call his banker? He's going to call his, 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 his stock portfolio? What does he need a phone for? Now again, many times I help kids do tshuva. Because I have a phone and they have a phone and we happen to, uh, to connect and they ask me for help because they're uh, uh, addicted to all types of uh, 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 immorality and so on. But the reality is, had he not had the phone, then this wouldn't even be a problem, at least to not, not to that extent. But today it's become standard to give our kids phones. So if, let's say, you cannot get yourself to a point where you take the phone away from your kid because he already has it and she already has it, fine, I can understand the, uh, the, the, the dilemma here. But to give them complete freedom on their phones, on these video games, on these computers, is simply something that is spiritual suicide. Why? Because the world is full of filth. If it's not idolatry, it's immorality. And if it's not immorality, it's idolatry. And if it's not one of those, it's something that we haven't even addressed yet. So these are some of the battles that we all have to deal with. These are some of the sacrifices we all have to deal with. And every time a person is faced with some of these battles, they have to ask themselves, what am I doing it all for? Many times people don't have an answer to that question because most people are living for this world. Most people are living for this world so they can have a bigger house and a nicer car and a nicer vacation and a better job and uh, better this and better that. And I think there's a, uh, it's important for us to constantly remind ourselves that we're not working and we're not living for this world. We're living in this world for the sake of the next world. And this is really one of the things that's hard to apply to life. Because when you have leaders that themselves are materialistic, themselves are uh, uh, really careless about the, uh, the next world, themselves are more concerned about getting likes and getting popularity than they are serving a Kadosh Baruch Hu, it becomes very, very difficult to know what's right and what's wrong. And that's the obligation that each and every single one of us has, which is to force ourselves to learn what the truth is and stick to it. Now, in this week's parasha, we see that Itro, the famous convert, gets an enormous amount of credit. 
an enormous amount of credit from HaKadosh Baruch Hu to have the sages name the parasha of Matan Torah after him. But the reality is that Itro didn't start that way. Itro started off as not only an idol worshiper, but also as a pope, a person that led others to idolatry. And when he first met Moshe Rabbeinu, Moshe Rabbeinu saved his daughters, but he didn't think so much about Moshe because Moshe told him that he killed somebody. He killed an Egyptian, and that's why he was on the run from Egypt, and he threw him into jail, and he put him in jail for 10 years. So initially, their first meeting, they weren't exactly good friends. But even after the 10-year sentence was over, and uh, Yitro saw the miracle that Moshe is still alive, uh, and decided to take him as a, uh, as a, as a worker, and then uh, later on as a uh, husband to his, uh, to his daughter. Really, the, the story of Yitro and, and Moshe really was like two guys that both grew up secular to a certain extent, similar to like today, and both decided to go on different paths. But before that, both thought they were right. Moshe Rabbeinu, of course, was already a Jew, a tzaddik, a righteous person, a, uh, an extraordinary person, but Yitro didn't think much of him. Why? Because Yitro was on top. Yitro had the position, Yitro had the money, Yitro had his uh, uh, community. Moshe was a shepherd that worked for Yitro. You fast forward, and we see that in this week's parasha, Yitro takes pride in something. But he doesn't take pride in his idolatry. Rather, he takes pride in the fact that he is the father-in-law of Moshe. And that's how the parasha begins. We're talking about Vaishma Yitro, Kohen Midian. That this Yitro, that was the Kohen of Midian, that was the Pope of Midian, he heard. He heard about the miracles that HaKadosh Baruch Hu made for Am Yisrael. Splitting the sea destroying Egypt, but all of those things can be explained in different strange ways if you make the irrational rational, but nonetheless you could say it's the weather, like you could say it's the, uh, uh, you know, uh, some other explanation, you could say it didn't happen. But the one thing that Yitro couldn't explain in any way other than outright miracles specifically meant for Am Yisrael was the war of Amalek, was how HaKadosh Baruch Hu destroyed Amalek for the sake of Am Yisrael, and also how HaKadosh Baruch Hu destroyed the Egyptians specifically, specifically with the things that they hurt Am Yisrael with, where how HaKadosh Baruch Hu punished them measure for measure. This was too much for Yitro to rationalize. And that's why when Yitro heard all of this, Vayishma Yitro, and he decided to go and meet Moshe Rabbeinu. After sending Moshe Rabbeinu messengers, Finding out where he is, Moshe Rabbeinu told him that he's going to be at Mount Sinai, and that's where they met. In the beginning of Parashah, it says that Yitro is now transfers from being the Kohen Midian to Choten Moshe, to the father-in-law of Moshe. And that's actually how he's referred to for the rest of the Parashah. He's constantly referred to as Choten Moshe. As it says, Vayevo Yitro, Choten Moshe Ubana Ishto. Yitro, the father-in-law of Moshe, came to Moshe with his sons. Why does it keep mentioning that Yitro is the father-in-law of, of, of Moshe? Because Yitro realized that his whole life has been one big mistake. His whole life has been fake. His whole life has been idolatry. 
The one and only God of Israel is the only God. Everything else is idolatry. Everything else is heresy. Everything else is wrong. There is no second best. There's just simply the truth and there's falsehood. So now, what else do I have to be proud of? Being a pope, that's not something I'm proud of. Being an idol worshiper, it's not something I'm proud of. Being a what? What else do I have that's any good? He did a self-accounting. Oh, I'm the father-in-law of a tzaddik. That's good. So he taught turns from being the person that's the considered number one in his land, the most popular, the richest, the most powerful, realizes it's all fake, abandons all of it and says, I still have to grab to something. What else is good about this life that I have? What else did I do that's good? Oh, I was fortunate enough to have a son-in-law that's a tzaddik. And that becomes his new pride. That becomes his, the, the only thing that's any good. And that's what's highlighted about Yitro from now on. That he is the father-in-law of Moshe. Now why is this highlighted? Is he name-dropping like a lot of people do? People say, oh yeah, you know, I know, I know that guy, I know that guy, I know that guy, I know that guy. That's not a good thing. I remember on Wall Street, people would name-drop of how they know this one, that one, that one, but somehow they're all broke. All the people they know are rich, but they're broke. People on name-drop are not exactly, uh, it's not a good tactic. It's not a good thing. But people love to do it to make it seem like as if they're more successful than what they really are. This is the fake networking world, the fake illusion world. So name dropping is not a good thing. But Itoh is telling Am Yisrael, hey, listen guys, I'm here, I'm the father-in-law of Moshe. I'm the father-in-law of Moshe. That, this is his wife, this is his kids, this is who I am. Why is HaKadosh Baruch Hu accepting this as a ma'ala, as, as a great thing? As Itoh elevated himself. Itoh earned spiritual credit as a result of this. Because that's Itro admitting to the truth. At the moment of truth, every one of us has to admit whether we're liars or we're, or, or living the truth. Every one of us has a moment of truth or two in our lives, and sometimes more. And at that moment, it's usually the most difficult test. Why? Because the truth usually negates our self-interest. Admitting that you did something wrong, and that's the truth, is not always the most pleasing thing. So Itro not only has to admit to the truth, but he actually has to admit that his son-in-law, the one that used to work for him, the one that was a shepherd, the one that he put in jail, he's been right all along. This is like how sometimes you see a new Baal Tshuva, young guy, young girl, starts serving Hashem and tells our parents, tell his parents, hey, listen, you know, God is real, the Torah is real, this is real, maybe you should do it. And everybody makes fun of her. And I have some students that tell me, listen, I started doing Tshuva, I started becoming modest and my brothers and sisters make fun of me. I said, what, what do you mean they make fun of you? She says, oh, because I wear long dresses now, and I'm modest. They make fun of me. They say I'm ugly. I said, well, so what do they want you to wear? Nothing. He goes, exactly. I said, they should be instituted. They want their sibling to walk around immodest. That's, that's a sickness. That's a, not only a spiritual sickness, that's literally a mental sickness. Why would anybody in their right mind want, it, want this? When I was a young kid, such things didn't exist. Nobody wanted their uh, sister or daughter to walk around like this. But today it's become standard. In fact, it's frowned upon to be modest in the eyes of some people. 
So you have some kids that are doing tshuva, that are trying to get closer to Hashem, but what's their biggest barrier to entry? Their own parents, their brothers, their sisters, their uh, siblings, their, 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 uh, their cousins, their classmates, and so on, that make fun of them. And one day, those people also get the moment of truth. And they realize they're also liars. And they realize they also have to do tshuva. And the only way that HaKadosh Baruch Hu sometimes accepts people's tshuva is if they admit not only that they were wrong about their whole life, but they're also wrong of how they dealt with certain people. Because sometimes the people that they used to mock are the people that actually held the truth the whole time. That's why it says in the name of Shlomo HaMelech, that when a Birzot Hashem Darkeish Gam Oivav Yeshlimimo, that when a Kadosh Baruch Hu is happy with a with a person, he'll sometimes give him a very very special gift. What's the gift? Even his enemies will come back and say, "I'm sorry, you were right," which is one of those things that you could only imagine maybe happening in heaven, because in reality this doesn't usually happen, but it happened here. You see that Itro admitted to his son-in-law, the shepherd, that he's been the one that's right all along, and not only right, you're the boss. You're the one that held the truth. You're the one that knows everything. I just want to be your student. To go from the top position, just imagine, the, the top pope in the world, to now you're going to be a little student requires an extraordinary tshuva and the humility that's unheard of in the world today. This Rabotai is how Yitro made himself into one of the greatest vessels of Kedusha in the history of man. Because it's the same vessel that his teacher, Moshe Rabbeinu, had. Humility. It's the same vessel that all of the greatest sages, all of the greatest tzaddikim and tzaddikot ever had, by humbling ourselves, that as soon as we see that something other than what we thought is the truth, we not only accept it, we become proud of it. Does that mean that I'm wrong in the past? Yes, I'm proud of the fact that I was wrong, and now I'm right. Yeah, but... You, that means you were wrong for 30 years. Okay, I was wrong. I'm an idiot for being wrong for 30 years. Sorry for being an idiot, but I'm happy now that I'm finally right. I'm happy now that I'm finally right. I'm happy now that I'm finally in the right direction. This is one of the most difficult things for people to do. And in fact, this is not possible to do on day one for most people. This is why the Rambam says that the Alachot in the Ilchot Tshuva, he talks about the steps of doing Tshuva. And the steps of doing tshuva are not easy. Why? Because each step is, is dependent on the next one. You can't just skip steps. So the first step, obviously, of doing tshuva is stopping the sin. Whatever the sin is, whether it's desecrating Shabbat, worshipping some idol, or wasting seed, any type of other immorality, whatever it is, stop. That's the first step of tshuva. Without stopping the sin, tshuva hasn't begun. Many times people... Stop the sin, but go back. Stop the sin and go back. So that's, you know, it depends why you're going back. Are you going back because your desires are simply uh, out of control? Or is it because you don't really think there's anything wrong with it? 
Are you just taking a break between sins? It's like people that take a diet in between meals. So a person first has to stop. Stop the sin. That's step number one. Number two is build a wall. What's a wall? A spiritual wall to get you away from that sin as far as possible. What are the things that trigger you to sin? If it's immorality. So that means that every time you go to a certain place or you talk to certain people or you do certain things that lead you to immorality. Okay, so that's the wall you need to make to get you away from those things. If you know that every time you talk to so-and-so, it leads to immorality, don't talk to them anymore. Yeah, but I like them. Okay, do you like Ganom also? Which one do you like more? Them or Ganom? Which one? Oh, I don't like either. Okay, so don't be friends with either. That's a sacrifice, that's hard, but it's necessary. Sometimes the only way to succeed is by cutting things off and being strict. Sometimes it's the only way. Some people can cut things in small pieces and succeed, but many times in life it's not possible. There's no half a marriage. It's either you go 100% of your marriage or you go 100% of divorce. There's no 100% of being a parent. It's either you're 100% dedicated to being a good parent or you simply don't have kids. There's no such thing as half in certain things in life. When it comes to servitude of Hashem, HaKadosh Baruch Hu doesn't want half of us. Because we also don't want half a blessing. When we ask Hashem for blessings, when we ask Hashem for parnasah, we ask Hashem for zivug, we ask Hashem for health, we ask Hashem for kids, we don't, we're not asking for Hashem to send us a half a kid. A kid with a head but no legs. Chash shalom. We're asking for a full kid, and not only a full kid, a kid that's functional too, and a kid that's cute, and a kid that's going to be good to us. We're not asking for a kid that just uh, has two legs but no head. We ask for panasah, we're not asking Hashem just to send us any money, so we're like homeless people, we get three pennies a day. No, we want real panasah so we can live at the right place and afford the right things. We ask Hashem for a zivug. We're not just asking Hashem to just send us anybody. We're asking for somebody specific that looks a certain way, that acts a certain way, that dresses a certain way. When we ask Hashem for things, we want the full blessing. So the least we can do is when we serve Hashem, to also serve Hashem fully. So there are certain things that a person needs to know they have to go full force. There are certain things that you don't necessarily need to go full force on day one. But that's usually the things that are not obligated that's to the extent of life and death. If it's Shabbat, there is no half a Shabbat. This whole program and notion that people have in the world that they can keep Shabbat half a time or for a certain amount of time or once a year, this is completely garbage. It's not even a good thing. There's nothing good about it. This whole one Shabbat a year uh, celebration that people have, I don't see anything good out of it. People say, yeah, but people started keeping Shabbat because of it. Yes, but also a lot of more people justified violating Shabbat for the rest of the year. You're changing the Torah. Hashem said, keep Shabbat every week. No breaks. As many weeks as you have in a year, that's as many Shabbats as you have. You decide to say, keep one Shabbat a year. Who gave you the right to keep one Shabbat a year? You can say, you have to keep Shabbat all the time, but we're having a special event this one week. Join us. That's a different, but they're not doing it. They're doing it in a different way. And other people are saying, listen, why don't you keep Shabbat for five minutes? Why don't you keep Shabbat for five hours? Where, where did this Torah come from? Garbage pail? Once we start changing the Torah to customize it for people, that's not serving Hashem 100%. That's serving ourselves. That's trying to get likes. 
that's trying to get popularity. Judaism is not about popularity. We've never been the most popular, and we're not looking to be the most popular. We're looking to help people. We're looking to serve Hashem. So a person needs to know that when they're doing tshuva, step number two requires you to be strict with yourself. Strict with yourself when it's necessary, when it comes to these fences that you have to make, to stay away from sins. This is why Chazal, our sages, put certain mitzvot in addition to the mitzvot that the Torah had, because some of these mitzvot are to protect us from ourselves. The whole uh, 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 issue of mukte, mukte of Shabbat, you're not allowed to touch a pen, you're not allowed to touch your phone, you're not allowed to uh, do a lot of things. Technically, the Torah says you're not allowed to write. But the sage says you're not even allowed to touch the pen. Why not let's touch the pen? Because if you don't touch the pen, that means that you're not even going to be close to writing. But if you touch the pen, who knows, maybe you'll end up writing. So that fence that the sages instituted is not for them. They don't make any money out of it. They don't get any street cred for putting that mitzvah together. They're helping us from ourselves. The key is to be able to also do that for ourselves. Not to just wait for the sages to do it for us, but also to do it for ourselves because we know ourselves. We know where we sin most. We know where we fail most. So when it comes to that fence, you have to be very strict. Now, you've stopped the sin, you've built a fence, but many times people stop there. And according to the Torah, they have not completed their tshuva. Most people think if they stop sinning, then they've completed tshuva. Most people think if they stop going to the nightclubs and stop cheating on their spouse and stop stealing from the government and stop stealing from each other, they figure, oh, I'm a good guy. And then they go up to Shemaim and Hashem says, okay, you're going to get a long time in Gainom. Why? Because you didn't do tshuva 100%. What do you mean? But I stopped. You stopped doing that, but you did other things. And the only reason you did other things is because you never really stopped because I said to stop. You stopped because you found something else. How does that happen? You skipped step number three of tshuva, which is regret. It's critical for a person to regret and apologize to HaKadosh Baruch Hu for their sins. That's the third step. Why is it the third step and not the first? Typically you would think regretting the sin should be the first thing, but it's not. Says Rabbi Israel Misalant, it cannot be the first step. Regretting the sin is, cannot be the first step. Not only it's not the first step, it cannot be the first step. Why? Because typically when somebody changes their life, they're not changing their life because they think they're wrong. They're changing their life because they found something better. He's not keeping Shabbat because he regrets going to the beach for the last 20 years on Shabbat and having a barbecue. No, in fact, that's what he talks about on Shabbat sometimes. Oh, you guys remember we went to the beach and we saw those guys and we saw those girls and we had a good time. You guys remember that? Yeah, and we went there. And he talks about his past as if it's the greatest thing in the world. Oh, you guys, oh, and the best thing is, he tells the kids, oh, yeah, when I was your age, we used to go here, we used to go there, we used to party all night. But it's not good for you, kid. Like he tells them about all the sins that he made in his life, but then he tells the kid, but don't do that, kid, because that, that's just me. But he's still happy about it. And the reality is his kid's like, wait a minute. 
you're saying you did all those things and you're still happy about it till this day and you're telling me not to do it? Why? What? Why not do it? Oh, because you're not allowed. Yes. Well, if you're not allowed, that means it's not good. And if it's not good, why are you happy? When you're telling the story. Why are you still laughing about the one that you went and you went and you went and you did this and you did that and you met her and you went to this one and you had this one? Why are you still happy about it if it's not allowed? You know why you're happy? Because you still never got to step number three of tshuva, which is regretting the sin. Many people celebrate their sins. This is one of the reasons why many, of ch many tshuva stories that you hear out there, they don't actually help people do tshuva. They just tell somebody's story. There's a story that came out recently. Some guy thinks of himself as a Baal Tshuva. Made a movie. Highlights the movie with the fact that he used to be a drug dealer. Highlights that he used to go to nightclubs. And not a single minute of that movie is spent on saying he regrets it. Highlights the fact that he brought a guy that comes from intermarriage. A famous rapper. And he's the first one that brought him to a nightclub. Okay, so why did you change if you had such a good life? You were selling this and you were promoting that and you were making this and you brought this. So why did you change? Oh, I felt empty. So what if I don't feel empty and I'm promoting clubs? What if I don't feel empty and I'm selling coke by the kilos? Does that mean I should stay doing it? That's what happens when you don't regret. When you don't regret the sin, that means that there's really no reason for you to convince me to also do the same thing you did. You may have changed direction because you simply picked a way that you think is better. You think it's better to sell this instead of selling cocaine. You decide to settle with one woman instead of settling with 50. But that doesn't mean that I want to do that. Unless you tell me that you did wrong, you regret it, and I shouldn't repeat your mistake. But if you're still celebrating your good times, going against the Shem, where is the tshuva there? And many times you have these different types of tshuva stories that people will tell you, and throughout the whole time they're laughing at all of their sins. Ah, we did this, and we went this, and we went that. Before you know it, you want to go make their sins. Much more than you want to go make their tshuva. You start thinking about, you know what? I used to go to that same club. Maybe I should go there again. You know what? I used to have three girlfriends too. Maybe I should have one. You know, one is not good enough. You start, instead of doing, thinking about tshuva, you start thinking about sins. Why? He doesn't regret it. You don't see a reason to do it either. That's why Rabbi Yisrael says you have to make sure that you regret the sins, but you have to realize that you cannot regret the sins on day one. Why can't you regret the sins on day one? Because on day one, you don't really think that you're wrong. You're only choosing something better. You're not keeping Shabbat because you think that desecrating Shabbat is wrong. You don't even know what Shabbat is to think what's right and wrong yet. You're keeping Shabbat because perhaps you think it's better, but not necessarily because desecrating Shabbat is wrong. You're not abandoning your girlfriend or boyfriend or whatever other type of lustrous relationship a person has because you think it's wrong and you stopped liking it. 
You just simply find something better. When do you finally realize that you did something wrong to the point of regretting it? After you followed step number one and you stopped the sin and then you followed the instructions that the Rambam gives and you put the fence. What's the fence? The fence is to stay away from the sin. Stay away from the garbage. Why? Because so long as you're in the garbage, you don't realize it's garbage. So you have to stay away from it. And after you stay away from it, and you put more and more fences to keep yourself away from it, eventually you realize that your whole life has been garbage. Eventually you realize that all of what you did was not only not as good as what you're doing, it was actually bad. And when a person is outside of the garbage for long enough, they start smelling the garbage. And that's when tshuva really begins. That's when you can say to HaKadosh Baruch Hu full-heartedly, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I dated that one. I'm sorry I stole that one. I'm sorry I took that one. I'm sorry. I didn't realize it when I did tshuva two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine years ago. But now I do. And for that, I'm proud. Yeah, but it took me nine years. Better nine years than nothing. That's what Yitro is trying to teach us. Yitro is trying to tell us, yeah, listen, I lived a whole life full of idolatry, full of mistakes. But the second I realized I did wrong, that's it. Finish. The end. What do I have left? One good thing. My son-in-law is a tzaddik. That's what I'm proud of. Yeah, but what about all of your achievements? They're not achievements. They're failures in, in, in monumental uh, degree of failure. All of what I did has been failure. Why? Because it wasn't the right path. It wasn't a kadosh baruch Hu. That's what Yitro was doing in this parasha. By defining himself by the only thing that's of any value. I am the father-in-law of a righteous person. I'm not a person that was respected. I'm not a person that was leading a lot of people. I'm not a person that was a multi-billionaire. No, I'm none of those. But why? Because all of those are connected to one monstrous failure of a life that I had. The one success that I have is that my son-in-law is a tzaddik. That's what I have. When a person can humble themselves to that extent... They deserve a place in our Torah. Each and every single one of us can do the same thing. But unlike Itro, and many of the stories that we hear, we don't always have the leaders to give us this type of news. Because in the world today, it's become much more popular to tell people things that they want to hear. So when you have a guy that desecrates Hashem's name on a regular basis in Texas, calls the state of Israel an apartheid state, in so many words, calling them terrorists, having more mercy for the terrorists than he does for his fellow Jews, giving bar mitzvahs to dogs, but yet you have these 
nice rabbis like Goldberg writing, don't tell me that he, what, uh, what his beliefs were. I was still praying for him. He wasn't praying for you. And he wouldn't be praying for you. But you want to look nice to people to make it seem as if you love all Jews. But that's not true. Because as soon as those Jews don't agree with your beliefs, you make sure to do whatever you can to silence them. So why did you write such an article? Because such an article is very popular with the liberal crowd that you eat off of. Such an article will make you seem like a lover of Israel. And unfortunately, Rabotai Karim, these are some of the things that we've seen throughout the years from different people that are supposed to be leaders, different people that are supposed to be rabbis, different people that are supposed to know better. But that still does not give us the excuse to be like them. That doesn't give us the excuse to join them. Because even if the whole world goes upside down, we still don't have a permission to do the same. When Eliyahu Navi, Zachul Etov, fleed from being murdered after all of the false prophets convinced Am Yisrael to follow them and go against Eliyahu Navi. Hashem says to Eliyahu, Malechapo Eliyahu, what are you doing here, Eliyahu? Eliyahu Navi says to Hashem, by myself, all of the other rabbis, all of the other prophets, they're Hashem. They tell them they can serve idols. They tell them they can bring a missionary to a synagogue. They tell them you can do whatever you want on Shabbat, including driving. What is the Kadosh Baruch Hu's response? Okay, go back. What do you mean? I, I can't stay here, hang out with you, Hashem? Wait until this whole thing settles down. Maybe some of these people do tshuva. How are they going to do tshuva? If you're not there, how are they going to do tshuva? There is no ishamit. There's no person of truth. All they have are leaders that are full of liars. How are they going to do tshuva, Eliyahu Navi? How are they going to do tshuva? If you're the one that possesses the truth in your neighborhood, then you're the one that's obligated. If you're the one that knows the truth in your family, then you're the one that's obligated. Don't look at the pulpit and think it's my responsibility, it's yours. Why? You have the truth, that's why you're here. So you have to be a messenger of truth to whoever you can get it to. Sometimes with your mouth, sometimes with your pocket. Sometimes with your hand to give someone a CD or USB. Sometimes to give someone a text message and invite them to a lecture. Every single person can be a prophet of HaKadosh Baruch Hu to deliver the truth. Why? Because you know it. And therefore you're responsible to deliver it to somebody. Eliyahu Navi was by himself. Everyone else was a liar. HaKadosh Baruch Hu did not have any remorse. He said, Eliyahu, go back. Yeah, but I'm alone. So what, you're alone? What about when many people went against HaKadosh Baruch Hu because it was either that or death after Nebuchadnezzar, who many people don't know was actually a Jew. 
Nebuchadnezzar, Imach Shimo Vezichro, destroyed the Bet HaMikdash, murdered millions and millions of Jews. So much so that there was literally mountains of Jewish bodies. After that, he brings Daniel, Mishael, Hananiah. You have four different kids, four different prophets. And this Nebuchadnezzar asks him to do what everybody else is doing. What's everybody else is doing? Go bow to my idol. He built a big idol, huge, giant statue. In the mouth of that idol, he put a tzitz, which is the part of the Kohen Gadol's uh, head garment that had the name of Hashem on it. He put that tzitz in the mouth of that idol which gave that idol supernatural powers. You know what supernatural power it has, this idol, this giant idol that was the size of a building? The idol said, I am God. The idol spoke. It wasn't like the idols they have on Wall Street that doesn't speak, it doesn't move, and doesn't do anything. This idol spoke, similar to the golden calf in Mount Sinai. And it was either bowed to an idol that speaks, or get killed. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah say no. Yeah, but everybody else is bowing. You could just run away. Not running away. Nebuchadnezzar says to them, tomorrow you're going to bow to my idol, I'm going to burn you. They go to the prophet and they asked the prophet, listen, tomorrow, they're asking us to bow to this idol. Everybody already bowed. Everybody else already bowed to the idol. Can we do it too? No. So we're not going to do it. So the question is, they asked the prophet, can you ask Hashem if he's going to save us? So the prophet says, yeah, one second, hold on. He goes, talks to Akadosh Baruch Hu. Imagine being a prophet. You can just talk to Akadosh Baruch Hu. And he answers. He talks to Akadosh Baruch Hu, and Akadosh Baruch Hu says, tell them, I'm not going to save them. If they want to jump in the fire, they can jump in the fire. Prophet comes back to them and tells them, sorry. The good news is, you're right, you're not allowed to bow to an idol. The bad news is, Hashem is not going to save you. They say, fine, we're going to jump in the fire. After they leave, the prophet Yechezkel asks Hashem, Hashem, why did you save him? These tzaddikim. How many tzaddikim are left in the world? So many died. So many left. So many idol worshippers. How many are left? These people are willing to, to, to die for you. Why don't you save them? Hashem says, I'm going to save them. Oh, so, so why did you tell them? Why should I tell them? If I tell them, then that means that they're not really serving me because they know I'm going to save them. I want them to think they're going to die because that way they'll get the merit that they were willing to die for me. That way, 
they will have that inscribed into their heart to give them continued strength for the rest of their life, even if many other tests come their way. Because once you pass a big test, once the moment of truth comes your way, and you don't care about what anybody else thinks, you just know what the truth is and you stick to it, and you pass that test, that gives you the ammunition, the strength that you need to overcome other tests. Why should I ruin it for them? He allows them to go there and jump into the fire. And before they jump into the fire, they tell Nebuchadnezzar. When he tells them, you are going to bow to my idol. They say, we're not going to bow to the idol. You are allowed to be a king because Hashem allowed you to be a king. But only a king of materialism, money, to give tzedakah, to give charity. But if you think you are a king of the world, you and the dog are the same. In front of everybody. Three, three little kids tell Nebuchadnezzar, the strongest king in the world, him and the dog are the same. Meaning that even if he didn't want to throw them into the fire because they're cute and they're smart and there are a lot of other things, he can't do it. He has to throw them in the fire. They just call them a dog. And that's what happens. And after they go into the fire, HaKadosh Baruch Hu sends Malach Gavriel to walk with them inside the fire and Nebuchadnezzar looks into the fire and says the Midrash HaGadol and sees that there are four bodies inside the fire. And he says there are the three that I threw in there and it is the fourth one. And the fourth one looks like the Son of God. After this Rasha Merusha Nebuchadnezzar said that, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, HaKadosh Baruch Hu sends him a message. Hey, you Rasha, that came from a putrid seed. Why did you say that that looks like the Son of God? Why does Hashem care if you call somebody Son of God? Because what Nebuchadnezzar was trying to do is what Christianity has been doing for the last 2,000 years. And what mankind has been trying to do for almost 5,000 years. Humanize God. If, so, if God has a son that has a body that I can see, then maybe that means that God also has a body. And if he has a body, then him and I are not so different. So HaKadosh Baruch Hu told us, that yes, you're going to have to make a sacrifice. You're not going to have to jump into a fire like these three tzaddikim. But you'll have different fires you'll have to fight. And a person has to know that the opposite, the opposite side is sometimes going to be someone you care about, someone you know well, someone that's famous, someone that's stronger. But always remember, God is not a man. He doesn't have a body. And you don't have to be afraid of anybody other than him. Not someone that's in a higher position than you. Not someone that's stronger than you. You don't have to be scared of anybody. And in fact, you're forbidden from being scared of anybody that has a body. You see, Rabotai Karim, when Itro humbled himself to show where he really stood in life, he was celebrated right away. And that's when he made himself into a vessel, a vessel of truth, to receive the truth, 
to receive the Torah. But sometimes, sometimes we get the truth and we don't utilize it. And this is why I always recommend for people to look at the real leaders that we've had throughout the years and see what they did at the moment of truth. Many people know the stories of Rav Ovadia, Allah Shalom. I was a huge tzaddik, huge chacham, knew an enormous amount of Torah. But some people have turned them into something similar to them or something similar to their local rabbi. Anytime somebody starts mentioning five or six sources in a lecture, they already think, oh, he's the next Rav Ovadia. If he could just be the shoe of Rav Ovadia, that would already be an achievement. But Rav Ovadia and many of the other Gdolim did not get to where they are without making sacrifices similar to Yitro. And those sacrifices were not just overcoming poverty when everybody made fun of him and his wife that he's only learning Torah. And they said to his wife, her own sister said to his wife, what are you going to eat? Books? Send your husband to work. That was an expected battle. It wasn't a test like some of the other things he had to deal with. Tests that people today are not willing to even take. Today you tell certain people things that are against the lacha, they'll try to find somebody that will make it allowed. And years ago, there was a bus full of kids, almost 40 years ago, from a public school in Eretz Israel named Brenner. And these kids were 12-year-old girls and 13-year-old boys. They were both going to the same school. And they decided to go on a class trip to celebrate their bar mitzvah and bat mitzvah, of which they had no concept what it truly meant, because... Any school that has both boys and girls is not a religious school. But this was an especially secular school. They wanted to celebrate. And they went on a trip. And it became a national disaster. When a train hit that bus and killed 22 kids. After those poor kids. That just got the moments, moments after they acquired themselves the responsibility of fulfilling the mitzvot of the Torah, bar mitzvah, bat mitzvah, that's what it means to be bar mitzvah, meaning that he's now the uh, owner of these mitzvot, he's, the, uh, he's responsible for them. Many people went on the pulpit, both secular and religious, and started desecrating Hashem's name. In all different types of ways. Some people saying, why would God do such a thing? They were innocent little babies. The young kids. Oh, maybe this was the mistake of the train. Maybe it was a mistake of the, tr- of the uh, bus. Ravadia saw that the Kadosh Baruch Hu's name was being desecrated. made a uh, kenes, a uh, major uh, event, and spoke. And in that event, 
He told everybody everything I just said to you and added a few things. It's a mitzvah from the Torah that the Rambam tells us in the beginning of, of Ilchot Ta'anit that any time that there is a disaster, it's an obligation. An obligation for us to come out and blow the horns to remind everybody that this disaster, whether it be corona or it be a financial crisis or it be a bus full of kids or it be any type of hostage situation or any type of disaster that happened to the community, it's not a happenstance. It's not something that happened because of anti-Semitism. It's not something that happened because of somebody's mistake in following traffic signs. It is 100% because of our deeds. And anyone that says that it's a happenstance, anyone that says anything else other than HaKadosh Baruch Hu is punishing us, is a vicious person. Those kids died because of their teachers, because of their parents, because of all of those people that are desecrating Shabbat, that are teaching them to go against HaKadosh Baruch Hu on a regular basis. That school, Brenner is a school of heretics. Teachers that are desecrating Shabbat and teachers that are serving all types of idols and not serving HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Those kids, he says, are now in Shamaim bringing a case against all of those people because they died because of them. Of course, this caused a major commotion in the media. People wanted to sue him. People wanted to remove him from office. But HaKadosh Baruch Hu protected him like he protects the tzaddikim. When he said that, some of the other G'dolei Adol says, he's the G'dol Adol. Why? When you tell people the truth, without thinking of anything, without thinking of any consequences other than the fact that this is what you're supposed to do, this is the will of Hashem, that's what makes you G'dol Adol. But even when it came to personal issues, People didn't realize that as much love as Ravavadya had for people, when push came to shove, if rebuke was necessary, that's what you'd have to do. There was one time a guy that came to Ravavadya with a couple. And this is also in the sefer that was written by his grandson, Rav Sassoon, Rav Yaakov Sassoon. And... Uh, in there, he writes all types of stories that he himself witnessed in his own eyes. And he says, I was visiting my grandfather, and I see that there is a uh, rabbi comes in with a couple, and uh, both were down. And the rabbi starts talking to Ravavadya, asking him for a blessing. And permission for this couple to stay married. Why? Because this guy is an avrech. Religious guy. Learns Torah. His wife, religious woman, allows him to learn Torah. Supports his Torah. So far so good. Except when she says something he doesn't like. 
Because when he says when something that when she says something he doesn't like, he gives her a beating of a lifetime. And after he beat her the first time, she came to the rabbi, and the rabbis tried to make things better, calm the guy down, convince her to go back, and then he beat her again. And after he repeated the sin multiple times, we're now at a situation where we need permission from Rabbi Vadya, the Gedol Adol, to tell us what to do here. And Rav Sassona tells a story, he says, Rabbi Vadya looks at the Avrech, and the Avrech is like a giant. He's like one of these really big people. You know, certain people, they're not just tall, they're just really, really big too. He says, this guy was like a Nephilim. They have in Parashat Bereshit. Giant. And his eyes were like fiery eyes. Like he wanted to eat the whole world. And the wife was small like a finger. Odd couple. But this giant, as soon as Ravavadya started talking and yelling at him, started shaking uncontrollably. He says, when my old grandfather, the Rav started rebuking him, saying, aren't you embarrassed of yourself? Don't you know what the Ramah writes in the Shulchan Aruch in Eben Ezer? That a man that beats his wife is like an idol worshiper among the nations? Aren't you embarrassed to be such a person? And he rebukes him and rebukes him, and this giant starts to shake. Like a little boy. And then Ravavadya sticks out his hand after rebuking him, says to the giant, Swear to me now, you will never touch her again on a tkiat kaf, which is a Handshake swear. There is no canceling of such a swear. Don't do it. Some people make the mistake of making all types of nedels. Don't make any nedels. Don't do anybody, including yourself, a favor. But says, and he writes in Yabi Omil, this is the way that he talks to people like this. He says, I asked him, he stuck out his hand and says to him, yells at him, shake my hand and swear to me you're never going to touch her. And this giant avrech that's shaking takes a step back and he says, but I don't know, maybe she's going to make me mad again and I'll, I'll lose myself again. What does the average psychiatrist do when his patient says such a thing? What is the average rabbi that calls himself a family consultant of some kind, family therapist, what does he do when that happens? Well, I can assure you it's not what Rabbi Vadya did. After this giant shakes and says, but what if I lose control? 
Ravadya takes his right hand and with full power and full strength slaps him across the face and says, swear to me now that you're not going to do it. And he continues rebuking him and the guy starts crying and eventually swears that he's never going to do it with the tkiat kaf. And after that, Gavavadya hugs them and kisses them and sends them to their good path. Why? Because that's what the halakha requires. The halakha doesn't say, oh, if he says maybe he'll lose control, oh, maybe we should send him to therapy, maybe we should talk to him a different way, maybe she should wear pads, maybe they should live in different houses. No, Habibi. The Shulchan Aruch gives us instructions of how to deal with certain people. And the society today are not willing to deal with people according to the Shulchan Aruch. Sometimes there's pedophiles and, and all types of sick people that are being hidden. Why? Because they don't want the bad publicity. Sometimes there's abuses. But they're hidden. Why? Because we don't want to break up marriage. Sometimes somebody is taking advantage of a community, taking advantage of people. But nobody wants to say anything. He's such a good person. Don't say Lashonara. All of this stuff has to stop. But it's not going to stop from the top, Rabotai. We don't have a Ravavadya anymore. We have Torah. And we have our own responsibility. If each and every single one of us starts caring about Klal Israel and the name of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, as much as we care about the blessings we want from HaKadosh Baruch Hu, then perhaps we can make a change. That change will start with ourselves, maybe even our community, and even our nation. But to constantly stay on the sidelines and do nothing, or worse yet, join the winning team, even if the winning team are full of wicked people, that's not something we want. Because these days that we're in, Rabotai, are days that each and every single one of us are going to have to make sacrifices. Yitro made a sacrifice and HaKadosh Baruch named the section of the Torah after him. Each and every single one of us is living a life and HaKadosh Baruch is one day going to show us the Sefer Torah of our own life. The Sefer Torah, it's our life. And HaKadosh Baruch is going to show us, this is what you did on that day, this is what you did on that day, this is what you did on that day. And they say that if Reuven, Reuven from the tribe of Reuven, who's the, did tshuva for the mistake he made against his father, and wanted to save Yosef. He wanted to save Yosef, so he told the brothers, don't kill him. And then he went to pray because he was doing tshuva, he was doing tikkunim. But by the time he came back, he saw that Yosef was no longer in the hole. 
Why? Because his tikkunim picked the wrong time. His prayer picked the wrong time. He was taking care of his own stuff at the wrong time. Somebody's life was at risk. Chachamim said that if Reuven knew that this whole story that I just told you would be written in the Torah, not only will he have not stopped to go pray, not only will he have not stopped saving his brother, but rather you would put Yosef on his shoulders and run back home to bring him back to his father. Aaron Cohen was still in Egypt when HaKadosh Baruch Hu was talking to Moshe. Moshe didn't want to be the leader because he thought that maybe, maybe Aaron, his, his brother, his older brother is going to be offended. HaKadosh Baruch Hu said, no worry. He's not only not going to be offended, he's going to be happy, he's going to accept you with, with, with excitement. When Aaron Cohen saw that Moshe Rabbeinu came back and he's the leader, he was happy for him, just like HaKadosh Baruch Hu promised. But the Chachamim say that if Aaron Cohen knew that that verse would be written in the Torah itself, that he accepted his brother, he would have accepted his brother with an entire entourage of music players and so on to celebrate. Meaning the Rabotei Karim, each and every one of these tzaddikim we read about in the Torah, whether it's Itro, that is known for changing his entire life and humbling himself the moment he realized he's wrong. Not that he saw what's better, but he realized he's wrong. Or it's Reuven, or it's Aaron Cohen, or it's anybody else in the Torah. If any of those tzaddikim knew that they would be written in the Torah, perhaps they would have done even more. The question is, what are we going to do when we actually do know that what we're doing is going to be written in the Torah? Our own personal Torah. We could talk about wicked people until the end of times, but that's not going to solve the problem. We can complain until the end of times, and that's not going to help the problem. We can give stories until the end of times, but that's not going to help the problem. At some point, each and every single person needs to act. Now again, some people are naturally leaders that can influence the masses. Other people can barely control themselves. The only thing that the Torah obligates us to do is the best we possibly can. If you can influence the masses, influence the masses. Without looking for anything for yourself, without looking for likes, without looking for popularity, only looking to help others because that's the will of Hashem. If you can only control yourself, then control yourself. But at the very least, do it as if you know that it's going to be written in the book. Because that, perhaps, will encourage you to push yourself to the limits. And maybe your limits are further than what you thought. Maybe your limits are bigger than what you thought. Because when we look at the world of the Reshaim, each week they do more than what they did the week before. We have to learn from them. They keep pushing themselves to more wicked things, we have to push ourselves to do more good things. Everybody can do something. Starts with ourselves. Perhaps you can influence a, a brother, a sister, a cousin, a neighbor, or anybody. But we have to each do something. This is why for the last seven or eight years we've been doing this. 
It hasn't been about getting followers and students. It's been mostly about encouraging people to become leaders themselves to some capacity. But again, remember, a leader is not someone that's popular. A leader is someone that stands up for something. Sometimes you'll have fans. Sometimes you'll have enemies. But either way, when you stand for something, you know that you have a purpose. With that being said, I want you guys, since you guys have all traveled here, to ask me any questions you want. We'll answer the questions, whether it has anything to do with what I said or not. doesn't really make much of a difference. But I'd love for you guys to ask as many questions as you'd like. And Bezat Hashem, Kadosh will give us the answers. Bravo, who wants to start with questions? Usually when I say once questions, I remember from the lectures we did, nobody has any questions. And then I stop the camera and then there's 5,000 questions. So we'll, uh, we'll give you guys a moment to uh, think of a question or two. Usually the kids have a lot of questions. Good. How did, so the question is, how did Miriam rebuke her father when she's only a little kid? So the, question, so the, the, the story goes where when Amram uh, saw that uh, Paro was killing, had a decree to kill all the firstborn babies, firstborn baby boys, not firstborn, all the baby boys, uh, Amram didn't want to go through this difficulty of, uh, you know, seeing a, a, your, your kid dead, nor putting your wife at the test. And uh, really the Midrash says that uh, at that time, the, uh, the reason why we merited to, uh, to, to, to leave Egypt is because of the righteous women. The righteous women of that generation knew the decree, knew that Paro was decreeing to kill all, the first, uh, all, all of the boys, but still enticed their husbands to be with them in order to bring a child to the world because they figured they can do whatever they can do by carrying a baby, by encouraging their uh, husband to be with them. And HaKadosh Baruch will be in charge of the rest. What's the rest? As soon as they had the child... They'd simply take the kid, uh, put him under a tree, and say, Hashem, now it's on you. And it says in the in, in Midrash, and Teilim, and many other places in the prophets, of how HaKadosh Baruch Hu took us while we still had filth on us. Filth, what filth? The filth that a, a person has when they're born. And took care of us. And that's why in the uh, parasha last week, when we talk about, you look at the uh, commentary, when uh, the, uh, the song of uh, Moshe Rabbeinu, and uh, the section that says, This is my God and I shall glorify him. That was a line that the babies were saying. The babies were saying. Why were they saying this? This is my God and I'll glorify them. Because all of the little kids, all of the little kids that HaKadosh Baruch Hu saved them under the tree, HaKadosh Baruch Hu himself, in essence, the Shekhinah, came down and took care of these kids, took two rocks. One rock was a uh, honey, one rock was a uh, milk, and fed them and took care of them for, for a few years until they returned them back to the uh, mothers. Mamash, miracle after miracle. 
So all those kids that saw the Shekhinah, Hashem showed them the Shekhinah again when we uh, crossed, uh, when he split the ocean. And they saw, that's, that's my God, I know him. I remember him. He, he's, the one that, he's the one that took care of me. That's my God. Oh, you guys see him? It's me. You see him too? That's who they identified. That was what was happening over there. That was what was happening over there. So now, the, this was happening for all the righteous women that took the risk. But this didn't happen by itself. First, it was Amram telling people, I'm getting a divorce. I'm divorcing my wife. Why? I don't want to have my kid killed. So now, the, his daughter, Miriam, that was only six years old, says to her father, Abba, the decree by uh, Paro was just to kill the boys. The decree that you put, since everyone is following you, since you're the Gdolador, is killing both the boys and the girls. Why? Because now that you've got a divorce, everybody else is getting a divorce, and now there's not going to be any babies. You're worse than Paro. So this wasn't a rebuke by a child. This was just a recognition of what truth was. It wasn't like she was telling her father, hey, Abba, you're, uh, you're wrong, you're terrible, you're this. This is simply a little kid acknowledging what's happening. You left my Ima, I love my Ima, I love you as my Abba, but what's the reason you left? You left because you don't want to have a, uh, the kid die. But the problem is that now, no one's going to be born. Not just for you, because my friend's parents also got divorced, and my friend's friend's parents also got, everybody's getting divorced on the street. Why? Because you got divorced. So your decree that everyone is following is leading to pretty much everybody getting divorced, and this is a disaster. I'm just letting you know what I see in the streets. So Amram, was a big tzaddik that accepted the truth regardless of where it came from, says, you're right. And he asked for his wife to come back. And that's when they had the miracle of having Moshe Rabbeinu. But how did the women survive this, uh, this, this major test of a reality where you have a tyrant with full control and power telling you that any boy that's born, we're going to kill him. And just to make sure, he also killed the Egyptian kids too. Not just the Jewish kids. So now, you have a situation here where there is millions of people uh, being killed on a regular basis. Every day, there's uh, 150 babies uh, that are murdered by Paroi Machshimo to make a bath for their blood. And at night, another 150 kids because his necromancers told him that uh, the blood of the Jewish kids is the, uh, is the uh, 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 cure for the tzarat that you have. You had a skin disease. So you're seeing people murdered on a regular basis. How do you justify having a kid, carrying him for nine months, dealing with all the difficulty and, and, and you know, all, how? When a person understands that there is one God that allows every single thing in the world to happen and we are not more merciful than him. We're not more merciful than him. Let's not ever think that we're more merciful than him. And our responsibility in this world is not to run the world. Our responsibility in this world is to run our life to do the best we can with our effort. What is, you know, what is, what can you do about it? That's what you do. 
Yo, as far as results, what's going to happen, what's not going to happen, that's not your problem. That's not your problem. And that's actually one of the, uh, one of the most important things that we learn from our sages, from, uh, from Am Yisrael in general. We see that in a uh, uh, Yamsuf, Am Yisrael came and uh, cried to Hashem. Hashem didn't answer. Moshe Rabbeinu cried to Hashem. Hashem told him, what are you crying to me? Move forward. Why move forward? Crying to me, okay, you did that. They did that. But obviously, I didn't answer the question. What else can you do? Going back to the Egyptians, that's not an option. Going right or left with their scorpions and anacondas, that's not an option. What else can you do? You've prayed, I didn't answer. Going back is not an answer. Going right or left is not a possibility. The only thing else that's left for you to do is move forward. So do that. Why do that? Because at the very least, you'll do something. To show me that you believe in me. Show me that you're not thinking about things just because it makes sense to you. You're not trying to rationalize God and only thinking that he can do something as long as I can understand it. And that's one of the mistakes that many people do. And that's why people try to humanize God many times. That was the big mistake that Nebuchadnezzar made. Humanize God by saying, oh, that's the son of God. That's the mistake that Christianity makes. They try to humanize God. Why? The reason why people try to humanize God because they try to understand him. They tried to relate to him. But the sages taught us that if we could understand God, we would be God. We don't want to serve a God we can understand. We want to serve a God that is telling us what to do, what's right, what's wrong. He's our moral compass, and that's it. And when a person starts thinking of, that, of the world from that perspective, that they have a responsibility... That responsibility is based on their ability. Whatever your ability is, that will determine your responsibility. If you are blind, no one's going to expect you to read. Okay, but if you can read, then you're expected to read. If you can walk, you're expected to walk, and so on and so forth. So HaKadosh Baruch Hu is telling us that we have a responsibility. Amram wanted to, in essence... Uh, uh, Make a decision that's going to better the situation by limiting the death. But HaKadosh Baruch says, listen, you cannot be worried about these babies I haven't killed. You can't be worried about these children that haven't been born yet. You have to be worried about what you can do. What can you do? You can stay married. You can bring more holiness to the world. You can continue praying. You have to do those things. The second that Amram went in a different direction... Hashem sent, because he was one of the four people that never sinned, Hashem sent him a very precious messenger, the prophetess that was his daughter, who told him, your decree is worse than, uh, than uh, uh, Paroz. Amram, that was Ishemet, that was a man of truth, understood this is not a message from a six-year-old, this is a message from God. Accepted it, changed it right away, and uh, got back to his wife. Um, and there are actually uh, commentaries in the Gemara that says that it wasn't like a, uh, a quick thing. It wasn't like a one, two, uh, one, uh, one or two day thing. It was a few years, this whole process. In fact, this process, uh, there was a uh, Yochevet uh, married another person and had two kids. Uh, and uh, we meet them later on in the Torah, Eldad and Meidad. So uh, they, she actually married another person and had two kids with him. And uh, I understand that this is throwing a lot of your heads into five different places right now. Like, what just happened over here? But yes, that's a, there's a place in the Gemara that talks about how Moshe Rabbeinu, he didn't have just uh, 
uh, Aaron and Miriam as his siblings, yet half siblings that we meet later on in the Torah, which uh, they uh, they prophecy and Yeshua Benun rebukes them because he thought that they're taking the uh, they're trying to take the position from Moshe, and Moshe says, "No, don't worry about those people. They're good people. They're righteous people." But nonetheless, this whole story that uh, until I learned this other part that I'm telling you now seems like something that happened in like a week. But it didn't happen in a week. It took, it was a few years. A few years. Nonetheless, the uh, Akadosh Bahu's message sometimes happens over a few years, over a few minutes, whatever it is. Each person just needs to make sure that they're there paying attention to the details. And the details sometimes will come from a, uh, you know, from a kid. Uh, the, the, the truth will sometimes come from a different things, but it's a... Uh, as long as the person has their eyes open, Hashem will, uh, will answer their, uh, their difficulties. Next question. Yes? Um, why is it necessary to sleep in separate beds when the woman is in God? And how is it fruitful for the relationship? Okay. So the, uh, the issues of Tarak Mishpacha, family purity, are the uh, f- fundamental and uh, fundamentals of Judaism. They're the foundation of Judaism, so much so that you really cannot have a Jewish community without family purity, without a, uh, uh, um, a mikveh and uh, somebody to teach the community how to keep uh, family purity because the, uh, a couple is not allowed to, uh, to be together without a woman First and foremost, going to the mikveh uh, once a month uh, and uh, to make sure whenever she's a, uh, pure and to only be together when, uh, when she's pure, which is a, uh, uh, each woman has a menstrual cycle. Typically, uh, there is a minimum of 11 days uh, during the month that a couple is uh, not allowed to be together, which is... Uh, Four days, if it's uh, or five days, depending if you're Ashkenazi or Sfaradi, plus seven days, that you're uh, that a, a woman is not allowed to be with her husband. Now, during that time that they're forbidden from being with each other, uh, which is a time that a woman is considered what's called nida, uh, that time that they're not only not allowed to be intimate with each other, they're also not allowed to be uh, in the same bed. They're not allowed to sleep in the same bed. They're not allowed to eat from the same plate. They're not allowed to hold, uh, uh, touch each other in any way, not even uh, hold each other's hand. They're not allowed to hand each other uh, anything. If, let's say, for example, you have a cup of water, and uh, she, has, she, you, she has a cup of water, she wants to give you the water that she just poured, she has to leave it on the table, and, and you get it on your own. She can't hand it to you. And this is, in essence, a protective measure uh, to, uh, to keep you, you from away from each other, to, to, to make sure that you're constantly... Uh, uh, clear about the fact that there is a prohibition from you touching each other. And the reason why is because if a person is not careful with the issues of, uh, of nida, of family purity, then it could lead them not only to share different things they're not allowed to share, but also be intimate. And intimacy when a woman is impure is karet, which is the worst possible uh, crime in the Torah. Uh, it's isur karet. In fact, there was a, uh, a very big story in Argentina. Years ago, uh, the, uh, the head rabbi of Argentina was asked to marry two uh, secular uh, couple, Jewish couples, uh, and uh, he asked them uh, to uh, 
go to the mikveh, the women to go to the mikveh. And the, uh, the husbands refused to allow their wives to go to the mikveh. And he told the husbands, if you're not going to allow the wives to go to the mikveh, I'm not going to marry you guys. You're not going to get married. Simple. You, you can get married. Secular marriage, which doesn't mean anything in Judaism, but according to the Torah, there is no marriage without family purity. In fact, sometimes I have students that uh, the, uh, the wife or the husband starts doing tshuva, but the, uh, the, other, you know, the spouse doesn't do it. She starts keeping Shabbat, she starts uh, keeping uh, modesty and so on, but the husband stays secular or vice versa. And they ask me sometimes, listen, my husband is not uh, doing tshuva like me, should I get divorced? And the, uh, the answer is, don't jump ahead, don't uh, go to the uh, bed dean to get a divorce right away. There are certain rules. If the husband doesn't keep Shabbat, you're still allowed to stay married to him. If the husband is not keeping kosher, you're still allowed to keep, uh, stay married to him. But if the husband does not allow you to keep family purity, meaning to go to the mikveh each month and he's not going to force you to be with him when you're not pure, if he's allowing you to keep it, you stay married to him. But if he doesn't allow you to keep it, you get a divorce. Meaning that the issues of family purity are a big deal, to say the least. So because of that, the, uh, this, this couple... Uh, didn't, uh, you know, didn't really get the point when the head rabbi of Argentina was telling him this. The head rabbi told him, I'm not going to marry you guys. If you're not willing to keep the basic minimum of a Jewish marriage, I'm not going to marry you guys to each other. Anyway, of course, uh, nothing new under the sun. They found a uh, wicked rabbi that uh, decided that he knows better than the head rabbi of Argentina. And uh, this happened probably around 30 years ago, maybe less. And... Uh, he decided to marry the, both of these couples against the head rabbi of Argentina's advice and uh, decision. And of course, these couple were friends. They were both laughing. They were both excited. The, you know, everybody was angry at the head rabbi of Argentina. They wanted to fire him. And as a celebration of getting a different rabbi to marry them, they wanted to follow the custom of the Goim, which is to go on a honeymoon. Go on a honeymoon. Now, you're allowed to go on vacation, but if, you're calling, if your vacation is just because you got married, it's not exactly a Jewish custom. Anyway, the, uh, they went on a, uh, on a vacation. They got on a plane. Both couples were on the same plane. And you can look at the records on the internet. I'll get you the year if you really want, uh, or you can just simply look at this on the internet. You'll find it. And both couples were on the same plane, both couples were going on the same vacation, and both couples died on that plane with everybody else when the plane crashed. Now, at the funeral of these young people, the head rabbi of Argentina showed up. And he says to everybody, Is the Gemara, Masechet Ketubot, in the Gemara, Maserik Tubot, it says, Since the day of the destruction of the Bet Mikdash, there is no more Sanhedrin that gives death penalty. But that did not cancel out the death penalty. All four types of death penalty are still instituted in the world by Kadosh Baruch Hu. And these couples that went against the Torah, got all four death penalties. 
And this is what he's saying at the funeral. You think anybody was dared to say a single word against them? Not anymore. But they could have simply just listened to what he suggested. To follow Tarat Mishpacha. Kadosh says, if you follow Tarat Mishpacha, you'll have a blessed house. You don't follow Tarat Mishpacha, you'll have death instead. Why? Kadosh Baruch rules. Simple. So, when a person understands that Akadosh Bahu's laws are not a matter of suggestions, it's a life or death, it becomes easier to overcome that desire. Now, so that's the issue, the reason of why we have separate beds. The husband and the wife have separate beds, but again, they're separate only when you guys are not allowed to be with each other. When you're allowed to be with each other, you combine the beds again. That's why Jewish couples typically have two twin beds. Or if you like bigger beds, two, two queen beds, whatever you want. But they, sip, uh, they sleep in two separate beds when they're impure. And they sleep in a uh, uh, combined bed uh, when, uh, when, when she's pure. Now, it's important for the couple to also continue sleeping in the same room, though. Like... Making the woman being nida doesn't mean she's bad, doesn't mean that she, she's frowned upon, doesn't mean that you mistreat her chasvashalom. It just means that you're not allowed to be with her, and it's a time for a couple to develop the other aspect of the relationship that's not physical, and it's usually the time where the, the relationship is built uh, to a higher level because that's when you can talk more, that's when you can appreciate more, that's when you can. Uh, spend more quality time that's not necessarily always dependent on a thing. And there's a Mishnah in Masechet Avot that says that any uh, love that depends on a thing, meaning an act of some kind, or a physical act and so on, or money or anything like that, is a relationship that won't last. So this is one of the ways that a husband and a wife show each other and show themselves that their relationship is not dependent just on physicality. Even though the physicality and the intimate relationship between a couple is of critical importance. If the husband and wife do not want to be intimate with each other, they can't stay married. They have to be intimate. Each month, you have to be intimate. It's part of a relationship. It's a critical part of a relationship. But it's not the relationship. It, there's a time for it, and there's a, there's a place, but there is a, a, a rules to follow. So a person that understands that there is a time to develop the spiritual relationship, there's a time to develop the physical relationship, knows how to treat the relationship as a relationship and not as a way to fulfill desires. Because that's what happens in most marriages today that end up in a divorce. It was simply a relationship of convenience or a relationship of desires. Where as long as you fulfill my desire, I'll stay involved. But the second those desires are fulfilled, better somewhere else, I won't be there anymore. And that's unfortunately a disaster of the world today, and that's also why there's a shiduch crisis. Shiduch crisis today is because many people are looking for somebody either to fulfill their desires or to give them a certain convenience. I'll marry him because he has this. I'll marry her because she has that. Uh, these are not, not, these are unhealthy relationships. A relationship is supposed to be where two people are supposed to uh, join together to bring the best out of each other. You're not looking for anything from her. She's not looking anything from you. You're looking to better each other. You're going into the relationship to help her. She's going into the relationship to help you. You're not going into the relationship to simply get stuff out of it. And when people start looking at the relationship the right way, 
they, uh, they end up having a very he- happy and healthy relationship. But it also requires for the people to be uh, attracted to each other and intimate and so on. But again, there's a time and a place. So this is one of the ways that a relationship is tested. Is tested. If a person simply cannot control himself, that means he's not married to a woman. He's married to a thing. He's not treating his wife as a wife. He's, he's treating his wife as know, some puppet or something. Some way to serve himself, his own body. He doesn't love her. He loves himself and he loves the things she does for him. Which means that anything else would be just the same. So if he can't control himself, then obviously it's a very sick thing. On the other hand, if she doesn't allow him to be with her, even when she's pure, that means she doesn't really care for him. She cares for what he does for her. So a, a, a woman that doesn't allow her husband to be with her is called, according to Allah, Isha Muridit, a wayward woman. So there's no permission for a woman not to allow her husband to be with her. Same thing, vice versa. So there is a time and a place for everything, and the family purity is one of the ways that a family, that a marriage, that a couple, sanctifies the house, sanctifies the marriage, and treats it as the Torah instructs, and not as the world does. And it's a, it's a beautiful thing, and that's why you see righteous people stay married to their wives you know, their whole lives, and they're not like the world today, that every few years they change clothes. You know, and it's, it has, the, the marriage itself has a more, uh, uh, more significance. It's, it's, not, it's no longer a, a, a thing where uh, people are looking for vacations on their own. You know, a lot of people, they want to take a vacation with their friends. They, when they think of good, they think of their friends, they think of, of, of other people. When they think of problems, they think of their wife or their husband. That's not a marriage. That's a nightmare. And part of the reason is because their marriage, their marriage is based on something or, or, or uh, uh, you know, some convenience. So part of the, uh, uh, the thing that the family of purity does to a marriage is change that. Change that perspective a person has. Because it forces a person to treat his wife like a wife, like a person, and not like an object that he could you know, do things to. And the same thing vice versa. Same thing vice versa. Yes, you had a question. Okay. Um, it was. It happened in a big, you know, people Orthodox synagogue where they did fundraising, mm-hmm. and I know that's forbidden. And so the person who started it, he committed the sin by making oh fundraising on Shabbat at a synagogue. Okay. So fundraising, fundraising is, is a, it's an interesting thing. Um, and, okay, on Shabbat, even on Yom Kippur, it's not forbidden. It's not forbidden. And the reason why is this. Shabbat, you're not allowed to do what's called melacha. And there are 39 specific melachot. Um, and there's also certain things that are forbidden on Shabbat that are not considered the things that you would do on Shabbat, such as talk business. Like, even though, let's say, for example, somebody talking to his friend about his real estate transaction that he did, he just bought a building, he just bought a house, he just bought a car, even though technically it's just words, the prophet Isaiah teaches us that this is also forbidden, 
because this is not the way of Shabbat. This is not a honor for Shabbat to talk about things that are uh, not connected to Shabbat. This is what's called divrechol. These are the things of the mundane, things of the uh, regular week. On the other hand, there is also a, a prohibition from planning things on Shabbat, meaning you can't tell your uh, husband or friend or whoever, listen, after Shabbat is over, we're going to go to the supermarket and buy more candy or we're going to buy more groceries. You're not allowed to do that. And you're also not allowed to plan. Let's say, oh, Tuesday we'll meet and we'll have lunch together. That's also forbidden because even though, again, it's only talking, it's only talking, this type of conversation is forbidden on Shabbat. On the other hand, if what you're doing, if what you are uh, doing is, let's say, you're planning or you're talking, but about a, sh- a mitzvah, then it's allowed. Then it's allowed. So you are allowed to plan a mitzvah on Shabbat. So when they do fundraising in a synagogue, no one is giving them the money on that end. There's no actual transaction that takes place at that time. No one's giving them the money. But in essence, what you're doing there is that you're telling people who wants to donate for, let's say, the Sefer Torah or for the Aliyah, whatever it is, who wants to donate. And someone, in essence, is, is, is uh, committing that they're going to give you the money. They're going to fulfill this mitzvah of giving the money for, for, for the Bet Knesset or for the Yeshiva or whatever it is, you know, after Shabbat. And that is allowed because, again, it's a mitzvah. You're donating for mitzvah. But again, it doesn't mean that all fundraising is allowed. If you're fundraising for something that's not really a mitzvah, oh, we're going to fundraise for the school trip of the kids. That's not a mitzvah and that's forbidden. If you're raising money for, let's say, to, uh, to, to, for the shul or for, for uh, the yeshiva or something that's related to a mitzvah, that's allowed. And the reason why they do it on Shabbat, because logically we would think, why do it on Shabbat? Do it on Tuesday. Do it on Monday. You have seven days a week. Why do it on Shabbat? And they asked Rabbi Vadya this question. He said, because that's when most people come to shul. And not only that's when most people come to shul, that's when most people come to shul without looking to leave as soon as possible. When they come during the week, they're looking to leave as soon as possible because they all have to go to work. And if we all had to raise money during the week, there wouldn't be any shuls, there wouldn't be any yeshivot, there wouldn't be anything. So we have to do it during these holidays and during Shabbat because that's when people have more time, more patience, and, uh, and uh, they're allowed to do it. But again, there is a uh, different tactics that different places use. I know that in the Sephardic world, they have auctions during the holidays and during uh, especially, uh, and during Shabbat that are in the shul. And in the in Ashkenazi world, many times they have silent auctions where it's, everything happens behind the scenes. I prefer the, the way of the Ashkenazim in this regards, but uh, if you go and try to do a silent auction with a bunch of Sephardi guys, you'll probably end up homeless. <laughs> uh, so... That's just the way it is, Abutai. It is what it is. We have to call it what it is. We have to give our brothers the Ashkenazim uh, credit when credit is due, and we have to rebuke ourselves when, when it's due also. The, 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 the way when it comes to money and organization, uh, Ashkenazim are much more organized, much more structured, and uh, I, I think that's a fantastic way, and that's, I personally think that's why they succeeded in building a lot more places in, the, uh, in, in America, in Europe, than the Sephardi did. Uh, on the other hand, uh, there is also uh, great things about Sephardi Jews that they've done also, but this is not one of those places. 
when it comes to money and raising money and building places, uh, the Ashkenazim have done a much better job. I think part of the reason is because the, uh, their auction system, I think, is, uh, has more blessing than our auction system does. Uh, our, their auction system is behind the scenes. Our auction system is a, uh, in the front. There's a little bit more pride. You know, I'm going to donate not because I really care about the cause. I'm going to donate because I want this guy to know that I have money. So it's, sometimes it's a little bit uh, obnoxious, but it is what it is. A lot of places uh, do it. I'm hoping that when we open our community and our shul and everything, we'll try to figure out a, uh, a different way to do things, but we'll see what HaKadosh Baruch decides. Next. Yeah. What can you tell someone, if anything, who has the outlook that Emuna gives reality, gives reality to something that doesn't actually exist? In other words, they think Emuna is just disillusioning themselves. Emuna disillusioning, right, so... Believing in that something will happen is a uh, is in essence like false hope. Is that what you think? Well, they think that Imuna, like being, let's say, just believing in God, just for just for the general sake, they think that you're just building a reality that doesn't actually exist, and it only exists so long as you believe in it. Ah. So they're just not going to touch it. Ah. Okay. Well, a person that, that, that has, is emunah in the fundamentals of Judaism, the fundamentals of the Torah, the conversation is not, is not uh, about emunah. Uh, the, the, the problem is not with emunah. Uh, the problem is with them believing that, the, uh, that God is real, number one, and uh, that there has to be a creator to the world. And number two, that the Torah is divine. Uh, their problem is not emunah. Uh, they're just labeling it as such, but it has nothing to do with emunah. It has to do with, first and foremost, becoming educated uh, and uh, resolving their, uh, their uh, disease that they have, their spiritual disease that they have, which is ignorance, uh, that leads them to believe that they can come from nothing. Uh, you know, it's anybody that delves into the topic realizes that it's not possible for anything to come from nothing. You know, if I told you guys that this uh, bottle created itself, you would all laugh at me. If I told you that the camera created itself, you would laugh at me. If I told you that I created myself, you would all laugh at me. Why? Because every logical person knows that it's not possible for the bottle or the camera or myself to create ourselves. And if I told you, listen, I created myself, but it took me a billion years. That's not going to change the circumstances. You're still going to know that I'm crazy for saying such a thing. Why? Because nothing can create itself. Nothing. Even the scientists that claim to be atheists also do not have an answer for this issue and simply run away from that problem when they're asked, even if you want to believe in evolution and all the other mumbo-jumbo that Charles Darwin implemented into the world, even though he himself contradicted himself, the point being is that what about the first cause? The first cause, the first thing that came into the world. Where did that come from? There is no answer in a scientific world. They say, oh, that's a question we don't have an answer to. Yeah, but that's the question of all questions. If you don't have a question, uh, for, if you don't have an answer for that, that means that everything else that you have is a house of cards. Why? Because you're finding it easier to believe that a cell re replicated itself and in essence created the technology. The cell that doesn't have the ability to do anything 
created the technology in itself to replicate itself through meiosis, mitosis, whichever process you decided that it's going to do, and kept doing it over and over again just because it had a lot of time on its hand, and eventually decided to become a frog, and eventually decided to become some type of reptile, and eventually decided to become some type of human, and all types of other things. All of, it's easy for you to believe that all of these things happen, then one supreme being created it. The reality, when you really look at things, it's actually much, much easier, logically speaking, to believe that there is a first cause which is called God, or Hashem, or, 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 or Amonai, uh, than it is to believe the whole process of evolution and everything else. But a person that doesn't want to believe is a person you can't help. Why? Because if he doesn't or she doesn't want to believe... That means that it doesn't matter what I say, they've already rejected it before I said it because they know what comes with belief. Belief and knowledge of Hashem comes with responsibility. Meaning, if I say that there is no God, that means that I am God. That means that I can do whatever I say. No one can obligate me to do one thing or another. On the other hand, if there is a God, that means that that God knows at the very least as much as I do. And at the very least, he knows, he knows as much as everybody else does. He, the, the creator knows at least as much as the creation. And this creator, if I know that if I create something, I have to create something for a reason, then that means that that creator also created me for a reason. And he didn't just create me in order for me to fulfill my desires, for me to have uh, more wives and more children and more husbands and more dogs and more cats and more money. He didn't create me for that reason because that's only things that fulfill my, my uh, desires. It doesn't do anything for him. So anyone that understands that there has to be a creator and that creator created us, that cause created us for some purpose, that means that I have to figure out what that purpose is. And there's no way that uh, that creator created us with a purpose without telling us what the purpose is. Why? Because that would defeat the whole purpose. If I know as the creation that if I create something and I want somebody else to follow the instructions, I have to tell them what the instruction is, and I know that as the creation, needless to say, my creator also knows that same exact thing. He knows that if he created me and he wants me to follow the instructions that will follow his purpose of, of creation, then he has to make his instructions easily available to me. Not something I could only find in some cave, not something that I could only find if I uh, watch a, a YouTube video, but something that's easily available in all languages, in all forms, in all sizes. And the best thing is, it's available. And the best thing is, it's uh, been witnessed by millions of people. Now the person that will deny that there is a creator after looking at all of the facts is a person that simply chose to deny it because he doesn't want the responsibility that comes with it. The responsibility that comes with it is that you now have to follow instructions. But that person will have to live with being a hypocrite for the rest of their life. Why? Because they're saying, I don't want to follow, the, I don't want to believe in a creator because, uh, not because I can confirm he doesn't exist, but rather because I don't believe he exists. And because I don't believe he exists, therefore I don't have to follow what the people that say he exists follow. Okay, but how come you follow the rules of the land, wherever the land is that you live in? How come you follow those rules? Oh, well, if I, I follow those rules because if I don't, I'll go to jail. Okay, so what? So how do you know you're going to go to jail? Because they wrote it in a book. So how do you know they wrote it in a book? Because I saw the book, it's on the internet, it's available. Okay, so how come you can't say the same thing about the Torah? So you see that when it's convenient for them to follow rules, they follow. 
and, and it becomes convenient for them because they know that man in this world punishes immediately. God doesn't. God doesn't punish immediately. Why? Because he wants to give us free choice. So a person like this that, that doesn't want to believe in God, first and foremost has to decide whether they don't want to believe in God or they simply don't have the tools to believe in God. If they really are looking for the tools to find the truth of whether God exists or not, those tools are easily available. I can recommend a bunch of different videos and movies and, and books that a person can read and get to an indisputable, unquestionable conclusion that God exists. In fact, we have a movie coming out in, a, in about two weeks uh, called The Signature of God. Uh, it's, a, it's a movie that I worked on with a, uh, a rocket scientist friend of mine. He's legitimately a rocket scientist. That's also Talmud Chacham. And uh, he uh, has all types of uh, interesting, uh, tangible scientific proofs that not only does God exist, but God is micromanaging the creation. He is in everything. You can see him everywhere, whether it's in the, uh, the, the chemicals or it's in the uh, laws of nature, or it's pretty much everywhere, literally everywhere. That's why it's called the signature of God. And we show all of the different aspects of our day-to-day -day life where you can see God clearly. It's not a coincidence. It's just something that is what it is. So a person that sees this type of information and complements it with even more information that shows the uh, indisputable truth that there is a creator to the world, now has to decide... Now that I know that there's a creator, where's the instructions? Once the person has arrived at that place, then there is a conversation to be had. Then there's a conversation to be had when it comes to religion. Why? Because what makes Judaism right versus Christianity or Buddhism or, uh, or uh, Islam or so on. And there's also a different debate, a different uh, uh, logic for those. First and foremost, we came before all of them. Second of all, there is a, uh, 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 proofs in the Torah. The Torah itself is a divine instruction and so on and so forth. So a person cannot uh, label their uh, choice of, of arrogance and ignorance uh, as, a, uh, as emuna. It's not an emuna issue. It's an ignorance issue. Or it's a choice, meaning they're choosing to be what they are. And a person that chooses to be atheist or a person that chooses to do whatever it is that they, uh, they let's say, they don't want to learn, you can't help a person like that. Why? Because you can't help someone that doesn't want to help themselves. So it's important to know that not every secular person is the, is the same, meaning they're not all the same argument and they're not all winnable. You can't, you can't win every single debate even if you have all of the information, because sometimes the other side simply doesn't want the truth. And many times that's the case. They don't want to believe. They don't want it because they know that, that they have thought about it and they realize that it comes with a responsibility. Uh, it comes with an obligation and they simply don't want that obligation. The problem with such people is that eventually God will obligate them. And when God obligates them, it's going to hurt a lot. Uh, and uh, that's, uh, that's why we make the lectures and the movies that we do, because we try to get to people at different moments in their life when perhaps they're open to uh, being educated about something that's opposite of what they thought is true. And Baruch Hashem, it works. It works. But usually people do not uh, uh, make themselves open 
for uh, a change in their life unless some type of uh, major event happened. A trauma of some kind or a uh, major issue of some kind that caused them to look at life in, in, in a different way than they did until that point. So many times you'll see that uh, atheists, for example, uh, that are, uh, from the scientific world, uh, changed their atheist uh, view and became uh, monotheistic, sometimes converted to Judaism or, uh, or just became religious Jews, many times because of either a uh, traumatizing uh, event that happened in their life, uh, near-death experience or something, or a major scientific discovery that simply they could no longer uh, lie to themselves about. So, but it usually took something. Usually it takes something. Uh, uh, but, uh, you know, it's, a, uh, it's, not, it's not hard to prove that God exists. It's not hard to prove that the Torah is divine and it's the only divine book in the world. There, it's not hard. It's, the hard part is to, uh, to, you know, to become receptive of it if you're not. Because that requires a person uh, uh, changing their nature and changing their, their, uh, their willpower. Because they have a yetzerah, an evil inclination, that tells them not to look. Tells them not to accept. That even if you show them the truth, in black and white, they'll force themselves to not believe it and not accept it. And they'll look for every little thing that is a, uh, going to minimize it in some way. And that's t- typically the, uh, uh, what happens with many people like that that don't want to accept the truth is that even if you found the truth and you showed it to them in black and white and let's say you gave them, let's say, 10 proofs that this is the truth, one of those proofs they have questions about and because of that, they'll negate the other nine. Don't negate the other nine. This is very similar with anybody that's not looking for the truth. Same thing that happened to us with the whole thing with the Boca Raton situation uh, where... We brought indisputable proof that the guy is a missionary that's targeting Jewish people for conversion to Christianity. We brought, I don't know, 15 or 20 different videos about proving the guy, seeing him himself write or talk about him being a missionary. Like, it's not like an argument whether he's a missionary or not. But the people that weren't willing to accept the truth, they stood quiet for two weeks, three weeks that we're having one video after another proving that he's a missionary. When did they start talking? When there was a question about the authenticity of the letter that came from their own rabbi, Rabbi Shechter. Whether he really wrote it or he didn't write it because there were spelling errors and his sons disagreed and all types of nonsense. The reality is it doesn't make a difference. Doesn't make a difference if he wrote it or he didn't write it. Even if there was a little, you know, hermit that came out of some hole in the ground, he wrote it and he signed uh, uh, Rabbi Shechter. It still doesn't make much of a difference. Why? Because you have twenty different videos and documented evidence that the guy's a missionary that Allah forbids from you to have him in a shul. Simple. It doesn't make a difference. But what do they harp on? On that one thing. Why? Because they didn't want to accept the truth. So that's the same concept that happens with all types of people. It's not just atheists, and it's not just uh, people like uh, these, uh, these Rashaim that we were dealing with. It's just simple people that don't want to accept the truth. So the most important part of every single debate that you're ever going to have with anybody is what is the purpose of this debate? The, the reason why uh, the Gemara tells us you need to know enough information to deal with an apikos, but not an apikos that's a Jew. An apikos that's a non-Jew. Why? An apikos, an heretic, that's a non-Jew, 
you need to know enough information to defend Judaism, so it's, the, the name of God is, is, uh, is sanctified. Okay, and it's not desecrated because the, the, the nations will think that uh, they know more than us or something like that. So it's important for us to know enough to deal with the, uh, the other, religion, the other uh, uh, heretics of other nations. But don't go and argue with a Jew. Why don't argue with a Jew? Because the Jew is not a heretic because of some foreign god. He's a heretic because of desires. The Gemara Masechet Sanhedrin says that Am Yisrael served idols, not because they believed in idols, but because they wanted to bring the idols into their houses so the rabbis that would come visit them will see these idols and then simply give up on them. Say, oh, if this guy's an idol worshiper, I'm not coming to visit him anymore. And once the rabbi stopped coming visiting, then he can bring his non-Jewish girlfriend and, and have a good time with her. Meaning the whole reason of why he served the idol was not because he believed in an idol. It was because he wanted to fulfill some immorality. He wanted to be with some non-Jewish girl. That's why he had the idol. So the Jew that has, that's, that's, that's an atheist is not an atheist or a heretic. is not a heretic or an atheist because uh, of, a, of an actual real belief. It's simply because of a desire. Their belief system is dependent on a desire. It's fulfilling a certain desire. So you don't debate Jews. The only time you, you, you discuss things with Jews is if there is a purpose. And the purpose can only be if they're willing to change. But if it's a match between me and you of who's going to win, we're not going to have that debate. That's why when people ask me, oh, why don't you debate rabbi such and such? We don't debate rabbi such and such. Oh, why don't you debate that, this one and that one? There's no debate on that. Why? There's no purpose. Why? Because the other side is not going to change as a result of me winning the debate. They're not willing to change. So what is it about? Me flexing my muscles and showing you I'm a better speaker than you? I don't need, I don't need a debate to show that I'm a better speaker than you. I've been speaking for over 20 years. I've debated for a living for, in, in, as a profession. It's, it's, it's not something I need to prove to anybody. Plus, I have the truth. It's an open book. So the point is, is that there is nothing to debate here. If a person is not willing to, uh, to change, there is no debate. There is no debate. So if you have a friend that is, let's say, likes to have these debates with you, but he's not the type of person that's willing to change, stop debating him. And quite frankly, I would say stop being friends with him. Why? Because the only thing that can happen out of it is him weakening you, not you strengthening him, because he's not looking to change. On the other hand, if it's somebody that's an atheist or some other form of heretic, but because of lack of knowledge, then sure, you could just simply give them the information, give them a CD, give them a USB, give them the, uh, the book, whatever it is, here's the information, and, uh, you know, and uh, let me know if you have any questions. That's perfectly fine, that's what we do every single day. But again, it has to have a purpose. It cannot be simply a, a debate to, to, uh, to show who's right and who's wrong because that uh, can cause more harm than good. Next question. Yes. How often should someone think of Olam How often should someone? Think of Olam Think of Olam 24 hours a day. Why do I mean 24 hours a day? Because... If a person thinks of the consequence of every one of their actions, it becomes much easier to do the right thing. Uh, if, let's say, for example, uh, I have water here. Why did I, uh, you know, I look at the water and I think, okay, uh, should I do, make a blessing or not make a blessing? Why am I even thinking about whether I make a blessing or not? Because I have a creator that's watching every single thing that I do. And he cares whether I'm stealing from him or not. 
if I drink without stealing from him, then it's, it's good for me. Uh, but if I'm stealing from him, then it's bad for me. Where is it good and where is it bad? I'm not thinking about this world. I'm thinking about the eternal world. Why? Because all of the bad that I've experienced in this world, Baruch Hashem, it's a lot of bad. I've seen a whole lot of bad in my life. But all of that bad, if you combine it all into one little, tiny little box, okay, you make like the whole, make it really uh, like the concentrate of all the bad that I had is not even a single minute of, of, of genom. So when a person only thinks of bad in this world, it minimizes the potential of the consequences that they can get. On the other hand, it's the exact opposite. If I only bless HaKadosh Baruch Hu for drinking this water or giving this shiur just because of good that I'm going to get in this world. Let's say I'm going to do a blessing. I think that every time I make a blessing, Hashem is going to give me 500 bucks. And every time I give a shiur, people are going to donate $5,000. Okay, that sounds great, right? But what if I don't feel like getting $500? What if I don't need it? So if I say, you know what, I don't need $500. You know what, I'm not going to make a blessing. Why? Because I'm only thinking of this world. Or I'm thinking, oh, if I do a lecture, they're going to give me $5,000. You know what? I don't know. This eye thing, my body thing, this thing, it's just not worth $5,000. If they give me $10,000, I'll do it. So it becomes, my, my, my logic becomes skewed. Why? Because everything is dependent on this world. So a person needs to know that all of the reward and all of the punishment that they need to think, think about all has to do with the eternal world, not this world. Because anything that a person gets in this world is limited. And generally speaking, it's used as a tool to steer him and, or her in, in the direction. Meaning that HaKadosh Baruch Hu is not going to give you more money because that money is a reward for your good deeds. He's giving you more money because that's going to allow you to do either more good or more bad. Meaning the money itself is not a reward that you get in this world. The money itself is a way to do more good or more bad. Why? Because the Rambam explains that there is no... Uh, uh, there's, since everything is material in this world, everything is physical, everything is limited. And there is no amount of good in this world that's sufficient to pay for a single good deed, for a single mitzvah. And there's no amount of bad in this world that's sufficient to pay for a single type of sin. Why? Because when a person understands the magnitude of good or the magnitude of bad in the eternal world, they realize that it's much, much bigger than we thought. So because of that, HaKadosh Baruch Hu says, I'm going to, if you did good, you did good. Let's say you gave tzedakah, okay? Now, Hashem rewards and punishes and operates in this world measure for measure. And one mitzvah leads to another mitzvah. So what ends up happening is that since a person gave tzedakah, Hashem sees, oh, this person likes to give tzedakah, he gives tzedakah to the right place, he uh, likes to give tzedakah, he overcame the test, I'm going to give him more money. I'm not going to give him more money because it's a reward for the tzedakah that he gave. I'm giving him more money because since he made a mitzvah of giving money, I'm going to give him the only thing that can compensate that, which is to give him more money to give. Meaning, give him the opportunity to do another mitzvah. Because as much money, that if, even if Hashem, if let's say you gave $1,000 and, and, and somebody did tshuva in this world with that $1,000, okay? All of the money in the world is not enough to pay for that mitzvah. All of the money in the world that everybody has from the beginning of the world to the end of the world is not enough to pay for that mitzvah. 
So Hashem, if He's giving you another $5,000, another $10,000, another $100 million, it cannot be the reward for that mitzvah. But rather, it's a tool that He's giving you to do more mitzvot. And why is He giving you this tool versus something else? Because you showed a liking towards that tool. Meaning, you gave money, so He gives you money to, in order for you to give more. Same concept with someone gets married. Hashem says, oh, he gets married because he wants to fulfill the Torah. I'm going to give him more ways to fulfill the Torah through marriage, which is I'll give him kids. Or uh, somebody uh, uh, that's doing uh, you know, all types of other mitzvot. You see that the mitzvot that a person does, he typically gets the tools that assist his mitzvot. On the other hand, if a person makes sins, Hashem gives him tools to assist his sins. Hashem assists the righteous, He assists the wicked. Now, as far as understanding the magnitude of, of, of good and the magnitude of bad, this is a way that you could look at it. If a person does good, let's say, for example, a person donates, let's just call it $1,000, okay? He donates $1,000, and $1,000 is used to market the videos, print out USBs, uh, do a, a lecture, whatever it is. Now, out of that whole thousand dollars, let's just say for argument's sake, a single person does chuba. Not a thousand, not a hundred, one person does chuba. Now, person think, oh, I did good. That person did chuba. Now, we're not even talking about somebody did chuba, became a rabbi, now helps a lot of people. No, no, simply, that guy is keeping Shabbat. And now he's keeping kosher and he's puts out tefillin. He's not a Tamit Chacham. He's not a Rabavadia uh, or anything. He's not going to help people do tshuva or anything. He's simply a basic Jew. He is a basic Jew. He's now keeping Shabbat because of this. He's now putting on tefillin and he eats kosher. Right? So you think, okay, so well, what's the big deal? The big deal is, first and foremost, that in itself is going to remove him. Remove him from the intermarriage debacle. Why? If he's keeping Shabbat, he's keeping kosher. He's putting on tefillin. He's not going to want to marry an Anju. Already, you've saved him from intermarriage. Number two, he's going to raise his kids the same way. And his kids have even more potential than he does. Why? If he's raising them this way in a house that keeps Shabbat, surely a house that keeps Shabbat cannot send the kids to a public school. So now the kids can learn a lot of Torah. A lot more Torah than he learned. And those kids can do every single second that they learn Torah is another mitzvah, another mitzvah, another mitzvah, another mitzvah. Every day they wake up in the morning, they say modani. Even if the father says modani, but the kids say modani. The wife says modani. That's another mitzvah. They do the tilat yadayim, just like everybody else washes their hands, but they wash their hands and they bless Hashem in the process. That's another way that HaKadosh Baruch Hu says it's worth it for him to create the entire world, the entire world with all of its problems for a single Jew to say amen. They're not only say amen, they're doing the blessing itself, these little kids. These little kids doing it because they didn't at the time. And Modani. And then after that, they say, They say, Thank you, Hashem, for not making me a goy. That in itself is an extraordinary thing. The whole heaven shake, a Kadosh Baruch who's dancing in the world. Why? Because this little baby that's five, six, seven years old is saying, Thank you, Hashem, for not making me a goy. Now, that kid's going to grow up. Eventually, he's going to have a bar mitzvah. He's going to start putting on tefillin. He's going to start reading Gemara. He's going to start reading Chumash. He's going to start doing a lot of things. He's going to marry a Jew. He's going to have Jewish kids. Meaning that that single guy that started keeping Shabbat, putting on tefillin, and, and started eating kosher, it didn't end with him. 
It's every single Shabbat he ever keeps. It's every parent feeling he ever puts on. It's every single Torah that he ever learns. It's everything that he ever does, but also everything else that he's responsible for. So the amount of good that that $1,000 created is literally endless. Why? Because it changed the eternity of an entire lineage of people. It's not one guy. It's not one mitzvah. It's not a, a happenstance of one thing. It's changing eternity. It's like either having this event or not existing. It's not having the event or not having the event. It's having the event with everybody here, wonderful people that keep them all over the place, or not existing at all. Like simply none of us exist at all. That's the difference. That's the, that's, that's the magnitude. So a person that does that much good cannot be rewarded justly in this world because there's not enough good to reward that good that he created because even the good that he created is unlimited because it continues to grow every year. Every time the little kid does uh, every time the little kid reads Chumash, every time the kid graduates, uh, another, another Masechet and so on, that kid is continuing to do more and more good every Shabbat. So the good that's created from that initial investment never ends ever. So it's impossible to pay for a never-ending good with something that's limited. On the other hand, it's the same thing with bad. And that's the unfortunate truth that many people don't understand. When it comes to the, the, the punishment, when we talk about punishment, and we talk about the horrific things that happen in Kafakela, in Geinom, in, in Chibuta Kever, all of these different uh, lectures and movies that we've made, People say, oh, no, there's no way. What, is God so vicious? Why is he punishing so bad? I don't believe in such an such a evil God. That's not evil. What you're not understanding is that you're thinking of God like you. You're thinking of a limited creature because you're thinking of limited actions. You're thinking you desecrated Shabbat one time and therefore there should be a slap on the cheek. You desecrated Shabbat twice and therefore should be two slaps. You desecrated Shabbat for 30 years. Okay, give the guy a beating and maybe break his leg. But that's it, chalas. No, you're not realizing that your sin had an unlimited bad that continues to bring more fruit. Why? Not only did the person himself sin, but also he led others to sin. Why? He invited somebody else to sin with him. He created little sinners. He influenced other people to sin. Other people got motivated to sin as a result of even looking at him, even if he doesn't even know them. Why? They were going to the synagogue, but they saw him driving his uh, car to the beach with no shirt on, pumping music. And they're like, yo, why are we going to synagogue? We should be like that guy. And guess what? One of them became like that guy. And that guy ended up marrying a non-Jew. And that guy ended up having a lot of non-Jewish kids. And that guy ended up going to church. And that guy ruined his eternity. And whose fault is it? The guy that drove by that was having a good time going to the beach. Why? Well, only does a great job at one time. No, you don't understand. The amount of bad that a person created as a result of their sin is not limited. It's not limited. Just like the good is not limited. Therefore, the punishment that comes in this world, no matter what punishment somebody had, even if they're disabled and they're blind and they're poor and they're everything else, it is nowhere near the amount of bad that they have. But the reason why Hashem gives it in this world is because the, this bad is worth more when it's in this world. Meaning that if a person suffers in this world, 
it's as if he suffered a lot more in the next world because Hashem is not looking to punish us. He doesn't want to punish us. In essence, what ends up happening is that we punish ourselves with our own actions. That's why the Rishit uh, Chochmah and many other places talk about how when a person goes, uh, the Gemara also says it, a person goes up to Shemaim and Hashem shows them their actions, they ask Hashem to throw them into Genom. Meaning it's not Hashem decreeing, oh, let me check, counting, oh, you have more sins, Genom. No, it doesn't work like that. It's Hashem shows the person everything that they did, and He also shows the person everything that He gave them. And the embarrassment that they have from their own foolishness is so painful, they say, Hashem, please send me to Genom. Like it's, it's, it's just they can't handle themselves because they're not living in a place of lies where they continue lying to themselves and make themselves feel like they're good and they have some wicked person telling them that they're good. There's no more lies. It's a place of complete truth. So the world of eternity uh, is, is, is not a place that's limited. And that's why a person that, that understands the whole issue of Olam Abba doesn't think of you know, uh, what can I benefit in this world? He thinks of everything relating to Olam Abba. Why? Because if I relate it to Olam Abba, first and foremost, it'll, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a place of not, that's not limited. And therefore, it'll be, it'll be a magnified uh, impact psychologically and, and so on. But the same token, having a uh, relation of things only to things of this world has the exact opposite effect on a person. Meaning, it could be like a Amalek. It could, be, it could cool a person off. Because if I think that the only impact of the things that I do will be in this world, that in itself is a, uh, can cause me to, to, to do the wrong thing. Why? Because whatever I can get is maybe something I can handle. If I think that the only punishment I'm going to get is something that's in this world, I can handle it. Why? I've dealt with a lot of punishments, so therefore I can handle that punishment. Why? Because we can quantify the, 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 the material. But if I start thinking of something that's much, much uh, uh, more uh, extraordinary, that in itself has a much, uh, much uh, stronger power. But again, it's, it's important to have a combination of both, meaning understand that there is uh, impact in this world and understand that there's an impact in the next world. But the, uh, the simple answer to what you're saying is what I said in the beginning, which is all the time, just pick and choose uh, how deep you want to get into uh, to it based on the action itself. Uh, as far as what's, what's at stake. Next question. Yes. How should one conduct themselves if they work in a work environment and whether it be speaking with a client, a colleague, or a contractor, but the majority of the people that they in, interact with is, it's all involves a lot of profanity. Profanity meaning that they just uh, they speak that way with the uh, with all types of words, or they're uh, they're it's a profane business in general, uh, meaning it's pornography or, or or I don't know things of that nature. No, it's a clean work environment, engineering environment. Oh, so just people just curse and they speak like uh, speak like a uh, they're uh, you know they just came out of a bar. Exactly right. I'm asking for drawings and they just come back and like, oh here's this. Here's the F drawing. Uh, yeah, no, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't take it to. Uh, I wouldn't take it to heart. Uh, number one, because most people, when they speak that way, they don't mean it that way. They don't mean that way. They don't. When they say, uh, "Here's the uh, go F this and go F that and all those tips, different types of filthy uh, language," they don't actually mean that. 
they don't, they're not actually thinking of a visual of this person taking this action. They just, it's a figure of speech. Uh, again, doesn't justify saying it, but it's a figure of speech. So I wouldn't overthink it. Uh, and I would simply just spend a little bit more time uh, learning uh, some clean language, and which is Torah, uh, to, uh, to make up for it. But you can't fix the world. Uh, you can't change people's uh, uh, way that they express themselves. And especially in the world today, many of the cuss words have become a, uh, a figure of speech where they don't have anywhere near the same value as they did uh, in the old days. Uh, I could tell you uh, that when I was a kid in, uh, in, uh, in high school, I, uh, we, I took a uh, advanced uh, placement class, a college class, and uh, it was about European history. And I had this teacher, his name was Dr. Weiss, Jewish guy, but not observant. And uh, he had us write a paper about different things that happened throughout history, and uh, I chose to talk about uh, the whole uh, issue of witchcraft. Witchcraft that uh, took place uh, over the last few hundred years. Uh, but not witchcraft in a sense that uh, 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 good or bad, but witchcraft in a sense of the, the, uh, how the world treated it, especially the world of Martin Luther, Shem Rishayim Yerkav. And uh, many of those uh, women that uh, Martin Luther uh, decided that he wants to kill them, uh, because many, many times they were Jewish women, uh, he would simply tell the public, uh, the Christian crowd, he would tell them that uh, they were witch, witches. And after people found out that they're witches, or think that they're witches, they'd simply tie them up and burn them alive. So, so this was a paper. And uh, it was, I don't know, maybe like a 50-page paper or something like that. And in one of the, uh, uh, one point, I was supposed to uh, give my opinion of, uh, of, of, of Martin Luther and, and I think other people. And when I described Martin Luther... I, uh, I called them a, uh, you know, a, a word that I understood to be just a uh, derogatory word, but not a cuss word. But uh, instead of getting an A on the class, I got an F. It was the first and last thing I ever failed in my life in school. And why did I get an F? Because according to him, from his generation and how he understood it, that word means a used condom. Okay. So, 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 according to him, I used a cuss word in a uh, you know scholarly paper, but according to me, I was just telling people this guy's an idiot. You understand? I was going so. So, the important thing to know is that not everyone has the same level of education, uh, the same level of understanding, and also not everybody's from same generation. So I wouldn't necessarily uh, give a pass to anybody that uses derogatory word. It's, it's, it's very important for a person to have clean speech. The Gemara in Masechet Shabbat, I believe, says that a person that uh, has, uh, you know, uses profanity uh, can change 70 years of good blessings into 70 years of curses. Meaning that he could literally, it's, it's a very, very heavy punishment to use the tool that Hashem uh, gave you to connect with Him, uh, which is your mouth, uh, for, for something that's profane. But at the same token, I, uh, a person needs to know that not everybody else is in the same place as you. So they're not doing it in this, from, from the same perspective as you. They're doing it because to them, they've trained themselves to, uh, let's say, 
mispronounce certain words uh, so, so often that it's become standard. Like, for example, I remember when I was a kid, this is when it was invented, I think. Uh, I was actually watching with my own eyes being, being invented by kids in my class in public school where they decided to start saying, pronouncing the word ask, axe. Axe, this may be standard to people in this generation because I'm older, but uh, this, is how people, this is how people talked. They said, axe, let me ask you a question. Now, my teacher, my English teacher would, 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 you know, would laugh at these kids, like, why are you saying axe? It's not an axe, it's ask. And like, no, no, I want to say it like this, I want to say it like this. And they, they thought it was funny. Now today, 30 years later, 35 years later, it's the standard language among certain parts of the world, uh, certain parts of America, where that's how the, the people talk. They actually say X. Like they think that this is the proper way and they'll even say, no, this is Ibanics or this is the culture or this is, no, it's nothing. It's stupidity. It's ignorance. That's all it is. It's justifying ignorance. But does that mean that you're going to change that by frowning upon it? No. Someone that wants to speak like an educated person will speak like an educated person. Someone that wants to speak like, I don't know, some guy that, uh, that, uh, you know, that decides what, what he wants to say, how he wants to say it. Let him speak that way. You're not going to change the world. The only thing that you can change is yourself and then the people that you're connected to that are willing to change. Uh, but I wouldn't... Uh, I wouldn't uh, worry so much about uh, other people's uh, cursing unless they are, uh, you know, encouraging you to do the same thing, which I highly doubt. You're an adult already, so it's not, it's not, it's not, not really relevant. Next. Yeah. Why did he stay quiet when he heard that Shechem uh, uh, raped Dina? Uh, the uh, the, word, the uh, mindset of, of the tzaddikim is not to act right away, uh, but rather to digest things and to see uh, what, would, what more would develop out of it. And he, uh, the, if you look at the commentary, I believe it's by Rashi, maybe by somebody else, it says that Yaakov wanted to see how the brothers react. And when he saw that the brothers spoke ahead of him and said to the uh, person uh, that, uh, you know, that they're willing to accept him, but only if they, uh, uh, if they circumcise, in essence, they kind of crossed the line. The brothers crossed the line by speaking ahead of their, of their father. But he didn't want to uh, argue with them in front of these, uh, these people. So he let them talk. And, uh, but they had a different plan. And since they already said one thing in public, Yaakov Inu couldn't really change it uh, or didn't want to change it. And then they acted obviously different. They contradicted themselves. They said, do this and then we'll meet with you. But in reality, they did it just to uh, um, trap them in order to be able to attack them later on. But that's the, uh, that's the reason why he uh, didn't speak because the brothers spoke ahead of him. Next. Anybody? That's it, we know the rest of the talk. Oh, here we go. Uh, what should one do and what happens if someone makes a promise to Hashem? It depends what kind of promise. Depends what kind of promise. If, if it's a promise that uh, is one of the obligations of the Torah, then it's not really a new promise. Like, for example, if uh, a person looks at this week's parasha, parasha titro, uh, we see that uh, 
all of us made a promise to HaKadosh Baruch Hu that uh, we're going to observe the Torah. We're going to observe the Torah. Uh, now, of course, the, uh, the righteous during that generation uh, meant it 100%. And the wicked during that generation meant it partially, meaning they were still holding an idol while promising to Hashem uh, that they'll do what he says. So, and then when they, because they didn't really know what it was uh, yet, and then when they actually did know what it was, they didn't want to, they fought against Moshe and didn't want to accept it. So the point being is that it says that when we uh, got the Torah, initially HaKadosh Baruch Hu spoke to Am Yisrael, and uh, they said, Naaseh v'nishma. They said that, Kol asher diber Hashem, Naaseh. But then later on, it says that at Mount Sinai itself, Am Yisrael uh, stood under the mountain, the bottom of the mountain. V'yitietzvu betachtit ha'al. So the Gemara in Masechet Shabbat says that HaKadosh uh, Baruch Hu at Mount Sinai, after Am Yisrael said, Naaseh v'nishma, we will do, and then we'll uh, hear. Meaning they already had blind faith that whatever Hashem gives them, is, uh, is good for them and therefore will fulfill it. But then when HaKadosh Baruch Hu really sh- you know, gave them the Torah and in essence showed them what it, what it entails, he put the mountain on top of them. That's what the Gemara says. He, put, he took the Mount Sinai and he uh, uh, put it on top of, uh, of Am Yisrael. He told them, you're now under the mountain. You're in the bottom of the mountain. If you continue what you've uh, promised, meaning you accept the Torah right now, then this is like our wedding. This is the chupa of our wedding. If not, I'm just going to drop this on all of you, and you're, this is going to be your funeral. Why? Because the whole uh, uh, existence of the world depends on Am Yisrael accepting the Torah. Where at, uh, in Bereshit, when Hashem created the world, each day it says that Hashem uh, created the, uh, uh, everything, and then it says that it was evening, it was morning, uh, first day, it was evening, it was morning, second day, it was evening, it was morning, third day, and so on. But then when it got to Friday, when it got to the sixth day, it says it was evening, it was morning, the sixth day. So the Gemara asks, why does it say the sixth day, and not just like everything else, first day, second day, third day, Lishon Shanish Lishi, why does it say Hashishi? It says because the sixth day was a special uh, deal that was made uh, between HaKadosh Baruch Hu and in essence the creation, where he said, I'm going to give the, uh, the Jewish people, the Torah, in the future. If they accept it, then the sixth day will transform into the seventh day, into becomes a, a Shabbat. But if not, I'm going, we're never going to get to Shabbat, I'm going to destroy the world. Because the world does not have a right to exist without, uh, without the Torah. And this, the symbol for that deal was the extra letter He before the word Shishi. That's why the word Shishi is Hashishi. So now... When, when Am Yisrael accepted uh, the Torah initially and said yes, that was good. But then when Hashem offered them the full, full Torah, He had the mountain on top of them saying, this is the deal that I had in creation, that if you accept everything, good, creation can continue, tomorrow is going to be Shabbat. If not, I'm just simply going to fulfill the promise that I made you know, uh, a few thousand years ago, and I'm simply going to kill you and destroy the whole world. Meaning that the whole existence was shaking at Mount Sinai, not just Am Yisrael. It wasn't just Am Yisrael dying, it was literally the whole world would, would cease to exist. So now, going back to your question, if the promise that you're saying is something that you've already promised, your neshama already promised at Mount Sinai, such as observing Shabbat, observing the issues of morality, 
uh, you know, a uh, kosher, things like that, there is no promise. You can't make a second promise. Any promise that you make today is, is null and void. Why? Because you've already promised. You can't promise or, or, or swear to do something that you're already obligated to do. The only thing that you can swear or promise to do is something above and beyond. Meaning, let's say for example, you know that you're obligated to keep Shabbat, let's say 24 hours, 25 hours uh, 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 a week, right? 25 hours. And you decide, I promised already at Mount Sinai that I'm going to observe Shabbat for 25 hours like every other Jew. But I swear that from now on, I'm going to keep it 26. I'm going to keep Rabbeinu Tam. Now, if you decide to institute that into your life, good. But if let's say one day you want to uh, change that, you want to go back to standard, you have to get atarat nedarim. You have to go in front of rabbis and you have to uh, 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 find a way to, uh, to uh, eliminate this, this swear that you had. Why? Because the extra hour that you added to yourself is not an obligation. You just added it to yourself. But the 25 hours, no swear in the world can, can change that. You can't swear yourself to do it, and you can't swear yourself not to do it. Because either way, you already promised to do it, because that's the reason why the whole world exists, is for you and I and everybody else here to observe Shabbat and to do everything else that we promised Hashem that we're going to do at Mount Sinai. So, in essence, when it comes to, when it comes to uh, the swearing, it all depends on what you're swearing about. If you are swearing about things that are not even connected to the Torah at all, Let's say, I swear that I'm going to wake up, I don't know, at 5 o'clock every day. That's a silly swear. And that you should get atarat nedarim, uh, you know, just in case it does have any weight, and you should get, go to uh, the uh, local rabbi, and they'll do atarat nedarim, uh, cancel out the swear that you have, because it's better not to have any of those things. Uh, it's better not to have any, anything extra. Quite frankly, it's better not to have any swears at all other than what we're already obligated to do because it's already tough enough for most people to fulfill what they're obligated to do in the first place. So there's no need to, uh, to add to it. I know that some people like to do it in order to like almost uh, force themselves to do better, but more times than not, it creates more bad than good. More times than not, they, they fail in a swear and failing in a swear in Judaism is a big deal. Uh, so much so that the Mishnah says, the people that do not keep their swear, the same God that destroyed the, uh, the generation of uh, Noah and, and the same God that destroyed the generation of the Tower of Babel is the same God that is going to destroy them. Why? Because those generations didn't keep their word and this person didn't keep their word. Meaning that making a, uh, 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 breaking a swear, breaking a vow in Judaism is a very big deal. Because it is a, uh, um, it's the tool that you're supposed to connect to Hashem. It's the, it's the number one tool you have in your life. This, is, this, is a, this tool that you have is, as your mouth, this allows you to become a prophet. This allows you to speak to Hashem. This allows you to pray to Hashem. This allows you to uh, do a lot of things that uh, is, is your, has to do with your servitude of Hashem. So to desecrate that, uh, that tool is a, is a big deal. But if a person made a mistake, meaning uh, they, they simply didn't know anything that I just said, and they made that mistake, then simply go to a uh, rabbi, they'll have a uh, tekes, usually they do it in the uh, high holidays, and they cancel out the swears and you're, uh, and you're fine. If a person is a new Baal Tshuva or young, I don't need to necessarily make, uh, uh, um, they don't need to get into some type of depression over it. Uh, or get overly nervous because uh, Hashem looks at Baal Tshuva 
and people that are new really religious uh, or simply people that are uninformed like we look at babies. You know, when a baby is, you know, you have, you'll, you know, you'll get married, you have kids, you'll have a baby and you'll see the baby one day will start walking. But before he starts walking and running around and breaking half the stuff in your house, he falls. You know, he tries to get up and then he falls. He tries to get up and he falls. And every time he does, it's really cute. Why? Because he's a baby. Hashem looks at a person that's newly religious, a new convert, a new Baal Tshuva, uh, a young person, uh, like a baby. Because in essence, that's what they are to him. So when they fall and they make mistakes, it's not the end of the world. It's, he looks at them, oh, he fell. Okay, as long as he keeps getting up and keeps trying, I'm happy with him. It's still cute. But if a guy is falling for 30 years, and he just keeps falling, then he's a drunk. Then he needs to be instituted or something. You know, he's not funny anymore. So as long as a person is only falling in the, unintentionally and in the beginning and not uh, doing things maliciously and so on, they don't need to uh, um, uh, get into any type of uh, depression over these things, but at the same token, they should always treat everything with the seriousness it deserves. Because if we start saying this is not important, that's not important, then you know, before you know it, the whole Torah becomes not important. So everything is important, but everything needs to be treated in its own uh, perspective. Anything else? No, Chabot, yeah, right there, behind you. Yeah, the one that didn't ask the questions. Yeah. Is it required to give Sadaqa to anybody that asked for it, or can you turn it down for So the Gemara says that there was two guys that uh, uh, used to uh, collect Sadaqa. A couple of times followed them and found out that these guys are thieves. They really, uh, they pretended to be poor, but in reality they were very rich, and they... Uh, they took all the staka for themselves. And uh, they, when they uh, uh, found them, they told them thank you. So the thieves said, why are you thanking us? He says, because you're saving us as a nation from a uh, heavy decree. If it wasn't for people like you uh, that, that steal people, then every time that a Jew would not give staka, there would be a case against them in Shemaim that how could you not give tzedakah? The guy is asking for money. So in essence, in Shemaim, every time a Jew doesn't give tzedakah, when somebody asks, there's like a case of why he's not giving tzedakah. Perhaps he suspects that the guy is a thief or the guy is bad or something like that. So because if every person that asks for tzedakah is really a good person and we didn't give it to them, then we have a very, very serious problem. So it's, you're not obligated to give tzedakah to every single person that asks you for uh, but uh, there are certain times, like Purim. During Purim, you give to everybody that asks. Uh, during Kimcha uh, de uh, Pischa, you give to poor families. There are different times during the year that you have to give, but you don't have to give to everybody. Uh, and you don't have, and, and, and anyway, even if you're giving, it doesn't mean you have to give a lot. If you're giving a little bit amount of money, let's say you give a dollar, five dollars, two dollars, things like that, then you can just give that to anybody that you want to give it to. You give it to a Jew, you give it to a non-Jew, you give it to anybody that you want. But if you're going to give a, something that's meaningful to you, 100, 500, 1,000, 50,000, whatever, whatever is meaningful to you, it's all relative, then you should do an investigation of some kind, some type of research that you would do to see that your investment is going to the right place. Meaning, don't just give a uh, $5,000 to anybody that says they just came from Israel and uh, they're a rabbi of some yeshiva over there. Check, make a phone call, look at a website to see if, if it's legitimate. Don't just think that just because somebody's a rabbi, that makes it good. Or just because it's a yeshiva, that makes it good. Or just because it's a, uh, feeding the poor, that makes it good. Because the rabbi could be a messianic rabbi for Christianity. 
the yeshiva could really be a place that teaches heresy that uh, some guy that died is the, really the Mashiach. The, uh, the poor could be a bunch of poor people in, I don't know, in uh, Zimbabwe or something that have no relation to you whatsoever when you really have poor people in your own house that you should feed. You understand? So don't assume that anything is, is, is good just because its purpose is good. You should look at your tzedaka like you look at your investments. If you're about to invest into a house or into a stock or into some type of business, you would do a little bit of research. You'd find out, is this good, is this bad? Same concept when you're investing with tzedaka. But if you're going to buy, I don't know, a dollar worth of some stock, you're not going to do any research. And if you do, then you should probably stop because you're wasting your time. You only have a dollar in the game. But if you're going to invest, you know, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars into some type of stock or some type of uh, 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 investment of some kind, then of course you should do a research on it. Same concept with, with, with staka. Same concept with staka. But there's two forms of staka. There's one staka that is the... Uh, Obligation for every Jew to give at least a puta every year, which is, I don't know, $5 or something every year. And there is the, uh, the issues of ma'asel, which is a tithe. Uh, 10%, some uh, give 20%, that's based on income. The, uh, the tzedakah of puta is an obligation. The uh, ma'asel, there's a debate whether it's an obligation or not. Generally speaking, they don't consider it an obligation, but it's a very, very important minhag chasidut. Uh, because this is a, one of those mitzvot that shows whether we believe uh, that Hashem is the one that's giving us money or we believe that we're the one that's making the money. But uh, when a person connects their uh, income and their assets to mitzvot, in itself it's, it's giving him blessing. It's, he's giving Hashem a reason to give him blessing, to give him protection and so on. But when a person is just simply living in this world just to buy a bigger stock portfolio and a bigger house and a bigger this and a bigger that, it's usually a very sad life. And I see that there's a lot of, now there's a lot of like podcasts and, and videos online about people liking to talk about money, but many times a lot of these people talk about how like they're not happy as a result of money. So one thing I can tell you is that in regards to, to, to money, as far as uh, being happiness, if you're doing the right thing with your money, spiritually, money will help you attain happiness. If you're not, money will help you reach unhappiness. That's in essence the, 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 the gauge. If you're using your money to do mitzvot, those mitzvot will give your neshama the fuel that is required for it to be happy. If you're doing, using your money just to buy more stuff, that gives the neshama zero fuel. And many times it, it's negative because it sins. And that makes the neshama very sad. And hence the reason of why many people that have a lot of money are not happy. It's not because they don't give. It's because they don't give enough or they don't give to the right places. And therefore, they don't get the nourishment that's necessary for their neshama. If you're giving the right amount into the right places, that money will help your neshama feel a certain state of achievement and, 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 and happiness and so on. But if you're not, then that means that you're doing something wrong with your money. Any else? Yeah, in the back. Uh, talking about giving money. Yeah.
Okay, well, you're not, you're, not getting, you're not getting punished for a, uh, for a mitzvah. You're not getting punished for a mitzvah. No one gets punished for doing a mitzvah, especially if you're helping other people. There's a uh, klal, there's a rule in the Torah that uh, a mitzvah is, is going to protect you, not harm you. Uh, but when a person gives to the wrong places, meaning he's giving to a place of idolatry, uh, he's giving to a place that goes against the Shem, and he's doing it... Uh, uh, carelessly or knowingly, then surely this person is going to uh, inherit a sin and, 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 and problems with that, uh, with that act. But when a person is simply giving money to a poor person, and usually it's a little bit of money, it's I don't know, $10, $20, $30, it's not such a significant amount of money, that kind of money you can give to any poor person, whether they are uh, a Jew or a Gentile. You're allowed to help a Gentile when it comes to feeding them and things like that. Because you're not helping them serve an idol, you're helping them survive, and that's that's a uh, that's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. Uh, but uh, as far as a uh, the tzedakah that I was referring to in the, in the issue is when people donate much more substantial amount of money and they're giving it to a place uh, rather than a uh, person to a place or some type of uh, uh, institution or entity that creates problems for for Am Yisrael, such as a church or uh, or the like. Uh, so that is a, uh, is, a, is, a, is a problem that breeds more problems. Like all of those people that uh, contributed to those events at reform shuls or at the uh, church in Boca Raton and all that stuff, all of those people that donate are not inheriting anything good for that. They're all going to get punished for the mitzvah, that they, for the, what they think is a mitzvah. They think it's a mitzvah, but they're all going to get punished for it. Why? Because it's... At this point and at this stage, it's no longer a secret. Meaning, if you say, I didn't know 10, 15 years ago because nobody spoke out, fine. But now that there's enough material out there to at the very least give every person a way to double check if it's right or wrong, you can no longer say uh, that you didn't know. And therefore, all those people are, uh, have a very serious problem. Very serious problem. Yeah. Rabbi, uh, we don't want the things I want to put out there is uh, that we want to give credit to where credit is due. Um, you, Rabbi Mizrahi, have changed my life. Oh, I've called you guys for the last eight years. And I've learned so much uh, in the last eight years. And one of the things that I've been following recently is uh, look at all the events that are happening in the world today. The World IMF is uh, predicting inflation to be for the next two to three years. Yeah. Um, are, are we in one of the signs of the Mashiach right now with massive inflation? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that the, uh, first of all, kola kavod for, for tshuva and for everything that you're doing. Chazak for all of you guys, for you, and uh, everybody's continuing to learn with us. Shrechem v'shrechel kechem. The... Uh, the signs of Mashiach, I mean, some people think this is the end. Some, you know, and that uh, we're uh, literally around the corner. Some people think we have a lot more time. Uh, I mean, I think that uh, there's definitely a lot of indications that things are uh, not exactly ideal and things are getting worse. Whether it's as bad as it get, it's going to get, I don't think so. I think it's going to get much, much worse in every aspect, whether it be inflation or it'd be uh, everything else, heresy and so on. Just to give you an example, 
of what bad looks like, and to show you that what we have right now is, is simply nothing, is that right now you have, let's say, the, the price of used cars have, have increased for the first time in history in America, and uh, the price of cars have gone up drastically. To buy a brand new car is extremely expensive. Everything has gone up in price, right? So in essence, the inflation is, 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 is very high, much higher than it's ever been before, uh, at least in the last couple of decades. But this is all meaningless in comparison to if you look at the last time Kadosh Baruch Hu gave a really big tikkun to the world, which is during World War II, and before World War II. Before that, the, uh, during World War I, really, uh, there was, uh, so about 100 years ago, the German economy was initially the leading economy, then they lost the war, the First World War, and the, uh, the penalty they had to pay devalued their, uh, their currency. And the German currency went from being a, uh, I believe it was like something like 10 to 1 for every dollar, to 40 to 1, 50 to 1, 100 to 1. Within a couple of years, it became 7,000 to 1, meaning that every uh, uh, 7,000 of them is equal to $1. Okay, when it used to be a uh, much, much better uh, conversion rate. It used to be, let's every four of them equal to 1. Okay, so then it went to 7,000 and eventually became every trillion. Meaning, it became paper. The only thing you could do with the German currency, in a matter of three years, the only thing you could do with the German currency is burn it for heat. Because by the, the inflation was so bad that by the time a person carried all of the bills they had to the store to buy bread, the price already doubled because the value of the currency uh, has changed so severely. And that's all in a matter of literally a couple of years. So the same thing has happened in other countries over the last few years. You have Venezuela and other places in South America that the, uh, their, their money has gone to virtually nothing. So the inflation that we have today, cars went up and wine and this and that, yeah, it's cute in comparison to what we've seen throughout history where if the uh, prophecy that's mentioned in the Gemara that the, uh, the value of everything will be the same gets fulfilled, that means, literally, the value of everything is going to be the same. Meaning that you and Bill Gates are going to have the same amount of money. So, the car going up 30-40% is going to be like a, a dream come true, uh, not a nightmare. You understand? So, that's, that's, the, way, that's the way it's, uh, uh, if you see from history, if you see from the Gemara, you connected it to so, does it go from that to, to the most extreme in one night? No. Hashem tries to do things in a natural way to give people opportunities to do tshuva. And the more people will do tshuva, the more Kadosh Baruch will protect them. Uh, and uh, Hashem, Hashem doesn't have any limitations to how He's going to protect everybody. People don't need to necessarily think, oh, I need to save a certain amount of money in order for me to be okay when Mashiach comes. Like some people you know, think, oh, I'm going to buy property in, in, in Israel, so when Mashiach comes, I'm going to be all set. Like, who even said you're going to survive to see Mashiach? Like, how are you so sure that, that Mashiach is, 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 is going to be here and you're going to be here too at the same time? Like, what gives you, like, Rabbi Yochanan, one of the greatest sages in the world, 
in the history of mankind was not sure. David Melech was not sure. Moshe Rabbeinu was not sure. But you're sure, so you're buying already a house in Yerushalayim or in some place because you're sure you're going to be okay. Like you think that this is, this is how? This is what Hashem waited thousands of years for, for you to buy a property in a, in a, right next to the Kotel. That's going to protect you at the time of Mashiach. People are delusional when they think about this stuff. And, and they think that money is going to help them or property is going to help them or any of that stuff. I, mean, Hashem, I went through that world. I went through that tikkun. And I'm familiar with the world of money and, and, and all the materialism and all that other stuff. And Hashem, I've never been given that tikkun to think so much of it. But I see the world at large today, and unfortunately, uh, uh, the Jewish world, where you see your average guy spend the vast majority of his time thinking about money and possessions and another opportunity to make more money and money and money and money. And that's all people can think about. And again, money is a tool that you can do good things with, but not everybody's doing that. You know, like... People are making more money now and have more money now than any other time in history other than the time of Shlomo HaMelech. Just so you know, the, the Jewish world and the world at large is very rich right now. And the Jewish world right now is the richest it's been since the time of King Solomon. But is the Torah as rich as it was at the time of King Solomon? No. Do we have a lot? Yes, Baruch Hashem. Do we have a lot of good things? Yes, Baruch Hashem. But if you compare per capita what we have versus what we should, it's not. And if you, you see that a lot of times the you know, parents are educating their kids to be materialistic because that's what they're talking about. Magazines are constantly talking about all the materialism. Like in the front communities, they're talking about diamonds. They're talking about, I don't know, a $10,000 hat instead of the $1,000 hat that was okay for their grandfather. You know, they're thinking about a, you know, extension to the house instead of just staying in the same house. Like, everything is just a lot more materialistic because a lot of people made a lot more money, which again, mabruk, everybody can have a lot more money. There's no sin of having a lot of money. Some of the greatest sages that ever lived had a lot of money. Rabbi Udanasi, Rabbi Akiva, uh, Rabbi Ben Hokinos, many tzadikim had a lot of money. There's no problem of having a lot of money. Question is, what are we doing with it? And it would, it, it would be amazing for a person to really calculate how much of that money they're doing something good with it. Honestly, like a real evaluation. How much of that money is going towards helping people do tshuva? How much of that money is going towards, you know, uh, publicizing to how much of that money? And you'll, you'll be surprised that, uh, unfortunately, we're, we're not giving anywhere near enough. Because if we did, uh, there would be a lot more. There would be a lot more. So I see a lot of materialism. I see a lot of profits. I see a lot of people that have no business uh, talking about money, uh, pretty much living with money as the only topic that they know how to talk about. Uh, and unfortunately, I see a lot of things that uh, are unethical, even in the secular world, becoming standard in parts of the frum world. Uh, and that's unfortunately part of the addiction to money. When you're addicted to money, uh, you, you cannot be a, uh, a witness in a Jewish ceremony, because that means that your opinion is, uh, is uh, viable, it's, it's for sale. You know, that's why a gambler, the Gemara says a gambler, you cannot use them as a witness in a uh, Jewish ceremony because they're addicted to money. The Gemara is Moed Katan. So a person that's addicted to money, you can't use them as a kosher witness. Quite frankly, uh, how many people do you know that are not addicted to money? 
I mean, look at how the, the uh, I don't know, every day I get some type of spam email from somebody that is publicizing some type of Jewish vacation. Luxury Jewish vacation for Pesach. It's, I don't know, it's, I just got out of Tubishvat. Pesach already? Like, there's like vacation, this luxury vacation, and, they, and there's luxury this and luxury that. And again, I'm all for living a nice life and having everything that you want, all that stuff. But when you make that like the, the, the substance of, of, of your life, uh, you have to start questioning whether it's still Jewish. You have to start questioning. So I think that when it comes to the issues of money and inflation and all that stuff, the way to look at, at money and everything else is simply by what are you doing with it? Are you doing, uh, is your, do you have enough or at the very least as much invested in eternity as you do in this world? Rabbi Nisim, again, Allah Shalom, used to say that some people, they have a, uh, a bathroom in this world that's a quarter million dollars. You know, nice houses, spend a lot of money in a bathroom, quarter million dollars to spend in a bathroom. But in the eternal world, all they have is a bathroom. Their bathroom here is nicer than their entire world of the next world. And that's a reality. That's a reality. Many people have very, very nice houses and luxury things in this world. But if you go to their next world and you see what they have in their account, it's literally a bathroom. And uh, part of it is because people live a delusional life thinking that there either is no reward and punishment, everybody gets heaven, or they simply are delusional to think that they're going to live forever. So both are wrong beliefs and both require a person to start doing tshuva. Anything else? Okay, last thing I want to give to you guys is, 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 is uh, to show you guys is uh, we have many projects going on. I told you we have a uh, couple of really big movies going on. Uh, uh, one of them is going to be published in two weeks and then one of them is uh, later on. We also have another, uh, we have a key roof store that's uh, doing well. A lot of people are ordering stuff. It's good price. Everything's free. So anybody that wants to go to the key roof store, keyroofstore.org. Uh, get some stuff to give out in your community. There's some stuff in the back that each one of you can get, USBs, uh, books, and so on. Uh, there's also going to be a raffle, I think. Somebody's going to talk about the raffle. Uh, somebody's going to win a whole set of uh, uh, the Rav uh, Nishim Yagen's uh, collection of books. But also we have this thing. These are, uh, this is just samples, so you can't take these, but anybody wants to see what these are. This is the new USBs. This is something that is, Baruch Hashem, Siyat Nishmaya, invention of Bezat Hashem. Doesn't exist in the market, but these are going to be the new USBs uh, that uh, we have that come in a little tin uh, box and a lot of graphics and so on. We're looking to print a lot of them so we can distribute these high-end products for free. That's the goal. I mean, we could easily sell these for $50, $60, uh, but I don't want to sell them. I want to give them for free. I want to, you know, I want to be able to offer... These things, which is something that doesn't exist in the Torah world. In a secular world, there's a lot of stuff that exists. People give phones for free. People give TVs for free. People give all the biggest things to make sins for free. But in the Torah world, the things that are usually given for free are garbage. So what we're trying to do is the opposite. Everything that you see are our products, our books, our, our CDs, our, our USBs. Everything is top of the line quality, extremely expensive. And this is no different. This is the biggest project that we have right now. We're looking to make a bunch of these to give them out for free. 
It's uh, very cool stuff. Anybody that wants to be partners is more than welcome to do it. Last but not least, I want to thank each and every single one of the people that uh, put this event together. The organizers, the decorators, the uh, event planners. And uh, it would turn out like this. I'm more than happy to do this again next month and each and every single month until who opens up the gates of heaven and we could have our own building that's even bigger than this entire institution that we could have all of you living here. Not just uh, uh, coming to a single shiul. So that's also going to happen uh, this year. And as a uh, special, uh, 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 I guess, a little inside scoop. To any of you that are wondering what's going to happen with the community and whether we're going to do it or not going to do it, just to give you guys a uh, uh, guarantee that uh, at least to know that we're, we're planning on doing is, is not, uh, even though we haven't uh, succeeded yet, we're not giving up on it. It took us about three years to, uh, to get it, uh, but we finally got the approval from the U.S. government to bring the most important rabbi in the world to us to come and bring him and his entire family to, to, to America. So, Be'ezat Hashem, if he's coming, we're also going to be here. And uh, that also means that we're going to have an uh, institution with a lot of good stuff. But we need, we need as much help as possible from everybody to, uh, to help us get to that point. Uh, so, uh, with that being said, thank you very much for everybody. To Skuli Mitzvot Abot, I'll sit over here for anybody that wants personal guidance or, or advice, anything. Baruch Adonai Le'olam. Amen v'amen.
מברך את הרבנים, רגע, 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 אני מברך את הרבנים, הרב ירון ראובן, הרב אפרים כחלון, אשר יגרו בעזרת השם, שהלכו בפעיון, שעלו מעלה מעלה, יהיה להם ברכה והצלחה, הקדוש ברוך הוא ימלא בלשונות ליבם, לטובה ולברכה, שבכל אשר יפנו, ישכילו ויצליחו, יזכו לעשות כאלה וכאלה, הודיעו תורה לאדירה, אמן ואמן.